VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, July the 19th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. We're looking forward to speaking with you this morning on a topic of your choosing. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, as you just heard from Jolene Grimes on the VOCM newscast, humidity is going to spike pretty high here today. Now, not easy on the old bouffant, which is, of course, the least of anybody's worries. But you wonder what the status might be in some, say, the congregate living spaces, in seniors' homes, and in some healthcare facilities where, for some, they've got some cooling systems, some air conditioning, but not all. So I think there's some good advice going around about checking in on your friends and neighbors, especially the older residents, regardless of where you, pardon me, regardless of where you live, or inside our healthcare facilities. We try to get some information about how they're combating this extraordinary humidity, because we know the kids sometimes will, you know, lose sight of maybe taking on enough water or reapplying sunscreen. But for older community, uh, older members of the community, they just simply can't adapt as quickly as others to these spikes in humidity in particular. There's a variety of reasons offered by whether it be the CDC or Health Canada as to why that is the way it is. But anyway, it's probably worthwhile to ensure that your friends in the neighborhood who are of the senior years, that they're doing okay here in the next few days. All right. Congratulations to a young fellow who I grew up playing hockey with, one of the very best players that I ever laced him up with, Derek Clancy. St. Pat's boy, went to Brother Rice. He was a junior Celtic. He's got an interesting job and a really challenging job ahead of him. He's now been hired by the Toronto Maple Leafs to be the assistant general manager of player personnel. I exchanged a couple of notes with him yesterday. He's pretty excited about it all. So last season, he was the assistant GM in Vancouver. He spent 14 years with the Pittsburgh Penguins organization, and during that stretch as a scout, won three Stanley Cups it's not just Cleary and Ryder and Newhook who have brought the cup home. Derek Clancy's brought the cup home here as well. So he played in the ECHL, the East Coast League, as it was known back then, from 1991 to 1999. They actually uh, put him in the Hall of Fame back in 2020, joining Cornerbrook native Darren Colburn as a member of that lauded Hall of Fame. But good luck to you, Derek Clancy. That is a tall task. All right, and just on the – actually, I'll do a couple more on the big, store, big stage before we get to a local issue. On this date, in 1910, Cy Young won his 500th game of his base baseball career. He, of course, went on to win 511. No one else has 500 wins. The black active player with the most wins is a guy named Justin Verlander. He's 40 years of age. He's got uh, 247, so pretty unlikely he gets to that number of 300, which is one of those big benchmarks. And I got a, a bit of razz. So, uh, wondering why I didn't talk about Wimbledon yesterday. <laughs> because you know, well, I was locked in to, in particular, the men's final. And yes, number one, Carlos Alcaraz beat number two, Novak Djokovic, in an absolute classic in five sets after losing the first set uh, 6-1. So I know there's lots of tennis fans around here. Wimbledon, probably the most prestigious tournament. And it was curiously on this date in 1877 that the first ever men's singles championship was played. A fellow named uh, Spencer Gore won the first lawn tennis championship in England, beating William Marshall 6-1, 6-2, 6-2. What's also an interesting thing is not only you win the prize money, which is well in excess of 200, uh, 2 million pounds, and of course the trophy and a place in history, but you also become a member of the All England Club. And the joke is, it's easier to win the championship than it is to become a member of the All England Club. But, yeah, there you go. There's the Wimbledon crack that you were hoping for. That's a funny email I got there. All right. And this email, not so funny. 
And it's from a parent. I don't know if it's a man or a woman because it's sort of a nondescript email address. And I'm not even sure what part of the province the story comes from. But telling me about a dust-up in a minor soccer game. Now, not physical necessarily. Apparently, there was one little gentle shove exchanged. But it was about one player on a team that was winning by possibly a wide margin and taunting the young goalie. And I think they were like 9 or 10 years old. So that's a parental issue as much as anything else. But apparently nobody did anything about it. None of the coaches, none of the referees, which is not great because it's supposed to be fun, especially when you're just a little tyke playing a bit of soccer. But it led me to consider something I've thought about in the past. And I welcome you to chime in on it. You know, for many of these leagues in the minor sports world, whether it be hockey, like in the hockey world, if you're playing squirt, they'll only reflect the five goal margin on the score clock. So if it's five nothing and then return seven nothing, it's still only five nothing on the clock. If the other team scores a goal to make it seven one, it looks like six one on the clock. Okay. In some minor sports, including soccer, there's the likelihood that they're not keeping score. Now, of course, inside the world of having fun, people make the argument, well, why put the pressure on winning and losing? Because it's just the nature of the beast. And the children know exactly what the score is. We're kind of kidding ourselves that we're sparing the kids. These rules kind of came to place to placate the parents who had to deal with their upset child upon losing a game. When in fact, inside sports, some of the most notable things you learn is how to win gracefully and how to lose and learn from it. So I think we're kind of kidding ourselves with not keeping score. Because everybody standing around the pitch who's paying any attention at all, and especially the children, they know exactly what the score is. But anyway, you want to take it on. Let's go. And I saw this curious tweet. It's not curious. It's interesting. And it's about crime. I mean, we've heard from members of the community talking about rampant crime in their neighborhood fueled by drugs more often than not. And then the story of someone setting up a tent where they were cooking crack or meth or whatever they were cooking and smoking and distributing from this tent set up in public space, for for lack of a better word. So there's an arrest made. And he's toting guns, charged with a bunch of gun-related crimes. Then there was another story of someone going around with potentially a sawed-off shotgun in the open air for all to see. And the question is whether or not these stories are newsworthy. And yes, they are. Crime becomes very difficult to talk about. And I would suggest for many people covering that beat, kind of maybe difficult to report on. Every time you bring up stuff like this, it is absolutely immediate that you'll be told, stop trying to make people afraid where they live. When in fact, just telling people about what's going on, that is well documented, whether it be from court records or otherwise, it's not uh, putting a sensational spin on things. It's not trying to stoke fear. It's just reporting the reality. But have people, and maybe some news outlets, have people become numb to some of the crimes we see and the quick turnaround on bail and back out in the community and what people refer to as very light sentences upon being convicted of even very serious crimes. So the question being posed by the Twitter person is, is this newsworthy? Newsworthy, and it is. But how do you want people to report on crime? Because I tell you right now, before I'm finished the preamble, I'll be told that talking about crime is simply making people fearful. Reporting what's happening is not intended to make you afraid it's intended to make you informed so anyway you want to take it on let's go all right so some of the news yesterday was about the report from stats canada regarding the inflation rate in the country and it's dropped inside the bank of canada's target rate between one and three percent at 2.8 percent last month down from 3.4 in may so yeah that's good news there's a issue regarding energy costs that have led to this decrease in inflation 
The problem for all of us, though, is uh, fluid inflation is still at 9.1% year over year, which problems us all. So interestingly, reading through some of the news stories and hearing from economists from some of the big banks and otherwise saying, it doesn't mean the Bank of Canada can breathe a sigh of relief. They still have to keep an eye on it and da 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 But I mean, the increase in the benchmark interest rate, even let's just say it was the last four or five times that they've increased it, there's no way it's had an immediate impact on inflation. I mean, economists will agree, well, for the most part agree, that the interest rate issue has a 12-month, 18-month implication regarding inflation. So you can only hope that the Bank of Canada and Tiff Macklin can just kind of keep their powder dry here because this interest rate issue is far and wide-reaching whether it be for variable mortgage holders or whether it be the implication regarding your rent and all the rest of it. So if we're inside the target, I'm really not sure why people are still so bullish on the Bank of Canada continuing to spike our interest rates. I mean, we already have massive household debt. It's become more and more difficult to service that debt. It doesn't impact your credit card, but it impacts your mortgage and your line of credit and any other outstanding loans you have. So anyway, I can't believe people are cheering on the Bank of Canada to keep going on that front. I'm not an economist, but I'm just talking about my own pocketbook, I suppose. And then there's reports out there. Let's get into some housing. So there's not one single province in the country where a minimum wage earner can afford to rent a one-bedroom unit using 30% or less of their earnings. That's long been the threshold and the measure that, whether it be the CMHC uses or other lenders, non-traditional lenders will use, is how much of your income should you be putting on your rent and or your mortgage. And the number's 30. So, of course, for some people, minimum wage is what they earn, and they don't live at home, they may or may not have children, and minimum wage can indeed, and I think it's rightfully viewed as a starting wage. I don't know how many people still earn minimum wage here in the province, which is in and around $14, almost $14 here, headed towards 15 next year. But even 15 won't cover rental for a one-bedroom unit in this province. That's extraordinary. And we can get into it. But here's where some people bring forward potential solutions, is in rent control. There are five provinces in the country that have some form of rental regulation or rental controls. And that's BC, Manitoba, Ontario, Quebec, PEI, and very recently, Yukon. Okay. So there's a difference between rent control for when you are the tenant and the need to be given a 12-month once you can have an increase once every 12 months, and you need between a one-month and a three-month notice from your landlord to the tenant. Okay. In places where they have rent control, they will say that that has a maximum that can be increased. For instance, in PEI, pardon me, in Ontario, it's 2.5% per year that is allowed while you are the tenant. The trick then becomes whether or not rent control equals vacancy control. So oftentimes, whether it be someone gets evicted for whatever reason under the sun, the possibility between renters to increase the rent outside of the rent control becomes available to landlords, and they can raise it to wherever they think the market can bear. So there are places where they have vacancy control in place as well. So I think it's both required if this is going to work, if you think it's a solution. I'm not proposing it as a solution, just bring it out there for a purpose of conversation. It comes with a potential downside. So the country has absolutely underbuilt purpose-based bills like rental units for a long time here. And some people will point out the fact that if you have rent control in place, it would dissuade a ton of developers from getting involved in this purpose build. Here's some numbers for example. In Ontario, so we can't talk about it specifically in this province because we haven't had any of these types of regulations in play. 
In Ontario, between 1960 and 1979, there was 224,000 rental units constructed in that province. Compare that to when the implication of rent control came to play. Uh, between 2000 and 2023, there was only 10% of that number built. There was 24,000 units built. So how do you approach that? We need developers to be interested in uh, mixed type of developments, whether it be some of their high-end units with some affordable housing, with some potential rental units. But if I'm a developer knowing that I have very little to no wiggle room in how much I charge for rent based on what the market can bear, of course developers are going to shy away. So between rent control, vacancy control, and developers and their want to get involved in that type of housing and construction, let's take it on because I think that's an interesting one that we can dig into. All right, how are we doing on the phone there, Dave? I'll get through a couple of quickies before we get to your calls. All right, so we all know about the water bomber issue here, whether how many aircraft are helping in other provinces. We've only got one available at this moment in time and the pilot shortage and all the rest of it. And apparently, there's also an air traffic controller shortage. There's a private company in the country called Nav Canada, NavCan. They deal with the uh, air traffic controllers, and like many other facets in the travel industry, when the pandemic struck and there was very few aircraft in the sky, pilots were laid off. NavCan laid off hundreds of people belong to them, many of which have not been interested in getting back into continuing their training and to get into the skies. Now, unlike in the States where you can get the planes in the skies, unlike in the United States where you can get that information, publicly, you can't in this country. So whether it be airports themselves and or the various airlines saying that there have been many of their flights impacted simply because of the shortage or turnover inside of the world of air traffic controllers, of all things. So if you've been traveling and want to talk about your experiences and any of the protections afforded to you by the airline, if any, we can take it on. I think we're anticipating a call from the Minister of Education this morning. There was an announcement yesterday of some $10 million to Memorial University to give a one-year relief for the campus renewal fee. For a full-time month student, that will be savings in and around 500 bucks a year. Of course, the students' union doesn't think that goes far enough. When Memorial was uh, doing without $68.4 million, we saw what the implications were there, a massive spike, a doubling in tuition. So we can talk to the minister about that and why it's not more than a one-year issue. But inside of all of that, if you want to pose some uh, specific questions, I know Charlie and others would like me to talk about curriculum and how it's devised. But I'm also thinking, uh, digging into the pre-K program, because that's not only about early childhood learning, it's about daycare spaces as well. And we are seeing the program fall short. You know I'm interested in the concept of learning loss, so we'll broach that with the minister. Also, there are concerns voiced by the parents at PwC as to why there's a new high school going to be built in Portugal Cove, St. Phillips, even though the district itself didn't have that community on its radar for needing a high school. So that and whatever you think is appropriate to talk about. Oh, maybe the kids in the know body safety program, what do you think? And on that front, this is not necessarily in the uh, minister's ballywick, but back to Mon for a second, and the housing issue. Wouldn't it be great to hear a status update from the university about the concept of home share? It works famously in other parts of the country. And how it works is, in particular, international students, they would be able to live in some senior's home for a very low rent rate, but what they would do is be chipping in for household duties cooking and cleaning, shoveling the driveway, painting the fence, whatever it might be. So it's a win for the senior, and we vet these students. There's a, a formal process to ensure a safe place for the senior to welcome someone into their home. And so the student gets a place to live at a reduced cost. 
the senior gets some support around the home and a bit of extra money coming in. It's good for the university when so many people who are wanting to enroll are worried about where they're going to live, how much it's going to cost. So it'd be great to get an update there. And if you're interested to talk about some issues on the federal scene, we can do it. But we're anxiously awaiting a status update as to next steps regarding foreign interference into the federal elections. People focus in on 2019 and 2021, when in fact it's been happening for a long time, for decades, different levels of severity. But we know the failed exercise inside the world of special repertoire appointment of David Johnston and where we go from here and some of the moving parts that we still don't quite understand and the concept of a public inquiry, I'll let you drive that conversation. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a rip-roar and show. That means you're in the queue to talk about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number one. Let's say good morning to the Liberal member for St. Barbara, Lance Meadows. She's the Minister of Education. That's Crystal Lynn Howell. Minister Howell, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad, thank you. How about you? I'm well, thank you. Just wanted to call in this morning to uh, give some news and an update for students of Memorial University. As you may be aware, yesterday the provincial government announced an investment of $10 million into the students of Memorial University to offset the cost of the campus renewal fee that students um, are charged. And for the academic year of 2023 to 2024, we will be offering uh, fee relief in that component. So 10 million bucks back into the pockets of students of Newfoundland and Labrador and uh, certainly very excited to be able to offer that support to our post-secondary students. And the $10 million is coming forward after the government withheld some $68.4 million in support which led to a spike or a doubling in tuition so it's really just backfilling something that the government itself created but it's not a permanent issue this is a one-time t- one offer why is it only one time if you think it's as important as you just described? Well, it's a continued investment in our post-secondary students. You know, we look at, uh, on a daily, we look at what it is we can do here in the Department of Education to support students in early learning, in K-12, to and into our post-secondary. And when opportunities like this arise, it's certainly something that we want to take advantage of and be able to continue to provide affordable and accessible education to as many uh, of the students as possible who choose to attend Memorial University. Affordability is a bit of a moving target, isn't it? It's one thing for attracting students from abroad or around the country when they do some comparative tuition shopping, what schools they might be interested in. But affordability, if we're talking specifically about students wanting to be students at post-secondary institutions, especially MUN, that live here. Because affordability, again, it has implications regarding the cost of rent, the cost of tuition, and other fees that are paid at MUN. Would not, not using a comparative thing around Atlantic Canada. Does the department think that the doubling of tuition has offered an affordable opportunity at MUN for people from this province? You know, the, the tuition questions are, those are rates that are determined by the Board of Regents. So your question for, uh, regarding that might be better suited for them. But right now, what we wanted to talk about is how we're offering uh, this type of relief for thousands of students. And, you know, you're right, there are significant challenges with cost of living and expenses for students uh, all across the board. So this investment is in line with the government's overall plan to help residents with uh, more than half a billion dollars in targeted cost of living 
be released. So uh, it's the piece that's going to be available for students. It might be best asked of the Board of Regents, but they will simply tell us that their hand was forced with the withheld money to the tune of almost $70 million by the province. So it really is both entities involved here in the final evaluation because they're up against it. They don't have big revenue streams outside of tuition and fees. They have a huge maintenance deficit that they have to address. So a one-time relief is going to be welcomed. I have a university student at home, so I'm sure he's going to be happy with his $500 savings. But there's a long-term issue that still yet needs to be broached. And don't take it from me. Take it from the university itself and the students' union and the Board of Regents and others who are in the decision-making business with that school. Uh, In addition to that, so we saw the strike at Memorial University, and then it was the the thought surrounding collegial governance. There was an amendment required in some provincial government intervention to see two academic members joined the Board of Regents. They were looking for five or six, but they got two. Is there any intention to increase that number from two for representatives, whether it be from the union or otherwise? Well, like you said, they've been advocating for uh, that uh, commitment and that appointment. And as we continue these conversations, we we make decisions. And right now, we're very pleased to have two faculty members appointed to the Board of Regents, uh, along with other members. We announced seven uh, appointments uh, a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, they're working very diligently to um, to make decisions that, that are in the best interest of Memorial. And we're looking to continue to, to build that relationship and support them however we can. That's, and okay. uh, ongoing, ongoing conversations about how what that looks like or how that unfolds. But uh, certainly uh, we're, we're open to conversations and uh, want to work with them to ensure that the students at Memorial University are, are getting the, the best education. Let's go to the K-12, or actually the pre-K-12 system. And money is some $350 million-ish from the federal funding are talking about the creation of pre-kindergarten pilot program. The hope was to have it in place in 35 schools and 28 communities. At this moment in time, there's only 13 licensed sites. So it's not only about early, early childhood education, it's to create some additional 600 more child care spaces because we know for regulated child care spaces only covers about 14 percent it seems like the program is falling a little behind is there a real reason why we haven't been able to expand it uh, quicker than we currently have well we're we're still working it's still a very much a work in progress you know um, we've got dedicated staff who are working on that day in, day out, and we've got some great work that's been accomplished here in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador in uh, what some would argue a, a very short uh, time frame uh, since these mandates have been uh, introduced. So we're, we're working towards that, working diligently, and uh, hoping to create as many pre-K spaces as possible in the upcoming year. So is it a, simply a staffing issue because the curriculum is what the curriculum is, and these 13 would be applied to the other schools, hopefully up to 35. So is it simply a staffing issue that you're trying to overcome? Uh, no, there's there's a host of issues. Uh, you know, there's different considerations had to be given at different sites that we're, we're looking at. Uh, staffing ratios is, is just one piece of the puzzle, but we'll certainly continue to do that work to make sure that uh, what we have is uh, reasonable and appropriate for the, the staff, the the kids and the families that are involved in, in that whole process. Inside the world of teacher shortages and substitute teacher shortages, you know, we talk about all the healthcare workers and the different disciplines where we need more, but not a whole lot of focus on teachers necessarily, which we've got to get right. What does the most recent conversation between you and the NLTA look like or sound like? Because we had a big problem last year. Some schools unable to attract a permanent full-time teacher for a large swath of the school year. The sub, uh, sub world is a bit of a mess. So what's the plan for further investment? In the most recent budget, I think there was $12 million outside of infrastructure, 12 million dollars to deal with these types of issues in your opinion is that enough and if not what do we need to do to ensure we get it right on the staffing issues in the school no um 
Definitely an issue that's been identified uh, by teachers all across the province and uh, in the NLTA. And uh, just this week, had a great conversation with uh, President Langdon and uh, committed to a, a great working relationship there so that we can hear the the needs and the requests of the teachers in the province. And uh, I've been open with just about everybody that I've had a, a meeting with in the last few weeks is that I do appreciate the perspective of those who are on the ground who are actually doing the frontline work and uh, want to make sure that that perspective is heard and represented and uh, that they always have a voice in the conversation. So I uh, certainly want to continue that and continue to build on that as uh, we move forward with a plan for recruitment and retention here in the province. There's a pilot program for a body safety course, you know, kids in the know or whatever the appropriate term or title is. And I've asked past ministers of, Res- ministers of education about it. I'm going to roll it out in some 20 schools. I wonder, you know, some of the justification is, well, it comes with an associated cost, which is not huge, but they also say there's training required. There's a full calendar of personal development days that can be used to talk about training for that program. If you had your druthers, and now you do as the minister, are we going to see it move from a pilot to a permanent installation of this body safety program for every school in the entirety of the province? Because it seems to me, in other jurisdictions, it works. It's been test-driven for age appropriateness. It's been test-driven for uh, positive outcome results. So will we see it move this year from a pilot to a full installation? Because I think we should. What do you think? We're still continuing to, to work on that program. And as you mentioned, it's been uh, piloted in some of our schools. And uh, we're continuing that work, too, introducing new schools into the pilot this year. Uh, but I think it's important to identify that the information that's presented in that program uh, is, is key and it is vital. But it's already been introduced uh, through the curriculum. So it might not look exactly the same as that type of program, but the key information and the important information that we want to get to the students is delivered through the curriculum that's already presented. It's just um, presenting it in this type of program makes it a a more distinct and more focused uh, presentation. So uh, while we we do appreciate that and we're continuing to work on rolling those out, I just wanted to assure people that that information is presented to the kids at uh, at an age-appropriate level. I've seen the overlaps, and there are some, I'll call them redundancies, but there is some different type of approach and messaging for in this particular body safety program. A couple more before I let you go. The concept of learning loss. In other provinces, they've really figured it out, and they say, no question, children have fallen behind in reading and in math in particular. In the United States, some 6.7 million students between grade 3 and grade 8 were evaluated for the concept of learning loss in reading and math, and the federal government invested some $200 billion to address it. Enhanced summer school, enhanced tutorial programs. In this province, I know you're new to the portfolio, but the unfortunate reality for ministers is getting up to speed quickly with, with your senior staff. Have we even done an evaluation of the concept of learning loss? And if so, what has changed with the curriculum? Because saying we have a captive audience and the grade five teacher knows what the grade f- uh, four has learned, that's not enough. I mean, other provinces and countries have said it's not enough. So what are we doing? Oh, you're you're on to something there for sure. We're certainly uh, having those conversations, and particularly as we come out of uh, you know the pandemic and and how that impacted how what students learned and what level and and how much um, learning loss occurred there. So those are definitely important conversations that we've had conversations in our department about, uh, as well as we've included uh, people from this sector who have opinions on that and uh, even last year last summer they did a forum where they brought uh, people from the education sector from the department from the school district uh, teachers from across the province 
together to have conversations about um, the loss of learning that may have occurred in the K-12 system and what that looks like as students proceed to post-secondary, identifying gaps that may have occurred and uh, challenges that may have been faced and, and how they can work to overcome that and how we can work with uh, the K-12 system and the public uh, the post-secondary system to um, ensure that the learning needs are met. It would seem time is of the essence because it's one thing to talk about an entire high school group. If you start at grade 10 at the beginning of the pandemic, you have now moved on, if you've indeed gone to post-secondary, with a compromised education. I mean, not because I say so, but because the universities tell us exactly that. So is there the want to move it from conversations to a formal process? Because we don't really have a lot of time to figure out what we need to do to ensure that our graduates in a highly competitive global market for jobs and advancement opportunities, we can't get it wrong in education. So are we going to move from conversation to formal process? Absolutely. And they, they, straight, they struck a working group to uh, address some of those questions and to look at the information that came out of uh, the symposium and to particularly look at how we can move forward with particular issues that, um, you know, that can be addressed in the short term, the medium term and the long term. With curriculum development, and I know this is a, always, once again, a moving target, but some of the things that even, regardless of what political stripe or ideology anyone carries, some of the big issues of the day with healthy healthy body, healthy eating, and that's not even adhered to necessarily in all the schools because the Auditor General told us that not all the schools are compliant with the regulations regarding what they can offer children to eat in a school, whether it be through a vending machine or otherwise. So, and like your government, all in are talking about climate change, for instance, just to name one, and some maybe life skills that are as important sometimes as reading and writing. So let's just say climate change, for instance. I've seen some of the curriculum. I know what they're taught. I know what the intended outcomes are, but it doesn't necessarily line up with how important your government and your federal counterparts to talk about climate change as an issue. Have you looked at the curriculum? Do you think it's up to snuff for talking about the realities of life? Or if not, why not? Well, you know, we always look at our curriculum. We always um, make sure that we have the best information that's available to our students. And we want to make sure that we're providing um, an education that meets all the needs, uh, as you mentioned, uh, across the different facets. So uh, as we move forward on that, and you we identify that climate change is an important part of uh, our day-to-day right now. We're going to have to continuously review uh, that aspect and see how that folds into the curriculum uh, for the students of Newfoundland and Labrador. What role do you play as the minister there? And I'm not suggesting the minister or politician should write curriculum, but what role does your office play? I was going to say, I'm certainly not fine enough to be writing curriculum uh, as a politician these days, but uh, there are very qualified people and individuals here in the department who are going to take on that task, and as we oversee it look at it uh, and make sure that it meets all the requirements and that it's evidence-based and that it makes sense. So uh, certainly appreciate the folks here who take that role. Is it possible, I hate to put you on the spot, well not really, but uh, is it possible for you <laughs> and your office to play a role in helping get me get to one of these curriculum developing uh, officials or people so that we can pick their brain if they're intimately involved with what eventually will be taught in the various grades? If you can, you, you and your staff can help me do that, I'd be forever appreciative. Uh, you, we'll take that offline and see uh, what it is that, that we're looking at here. And uh, if there are opportunities for consultation, then uh, as I said before, I, I appreciate those as well. Last one. New high school in Portugal Cove, St. Phillips. It wasn't even on the district's radar. Folks at the parents of PwC and the PwC community say their school will be gutted. So the concept is, well, it's the premier's, uh, where the premier's children will eventually go to high school if they still live in that community come that time. So 
Is there any detailed justification available for those parents to address their concerns? Because if it wasn't on the district's radar, then how and why is this the school being chosen to be built when there's other high schools that need to be renovated, maybe other communities that need a high school more than Portugal Cove St. Phillips? So do you have those details about student enrollment and need so the PwC parents can be or find some cold comfort possibly? You know, we always monitor the growth in our communities and uh, look at what the needs of the community is and the needs of the students and families. And in the area of Portugal Coast St. Phillips, that is growing. Uh, we've identified a need there. And, you know, they've got a rock star mayor out there who's been advocating for years uh, to have this new school. And, you know, we've observed that there are enrollment pressures. So it's important that we have... Um, you know, a plan and that we're adaptive and anticipate the needs of our changing population. And this is just one avenue that we've uh, we've gone down to accomplish that. But we continue to look at all of our communities. We know that there's growth elsewhere on the Avalon and throughout the province. So those are always on the radar. Do you have numbers available for us to consider? In terms of? Uh, forecast of student enrollment, population growth, why that community versus paradise, or those types of numbers where we can do a comparative for our own, and those parents of PwC, for instance, can just dig into some numbers as opposed to, we think this is the right idea. Right. So we've been looking at all those numbers and, and the schools that feed into uh, the different uh, schools in the community and how that is going to affect the populations. And, uh, you know, we've heard the concerns from the, the folks at PwC, but I want to assure them that there, there is certainly a plan and that we'll continue to work with that school and uh, those residents to make sure that the needs are met for them as well as they are for students in other areas of the province. Last one, up to your district, there's a listener who wants to know what the plans are for the Flowers Cove Eyesore Salt Shed. Oh, uh, I was just emailed that gentleman this morning and told him that that's a, uh, a piece of conversation that we've been having with the Department of TI, and now there's a new minister in there, so I wanted to make sure that uh, we remind him that that's on our priority list. There are, you know, there's several of these buildings, uh, not all government, but there are buildings that are in conditions that need to be addressed across the province, so uh, we'll take them one at a time, uh, and noting that the, the Flowers Cove shed is on the list. I appreciate the time this morning, Minister. Thank you. Patty, just before I go, I wanted sure. to touch on the um, email scam that had come out uh, for students regarding their student loans. There's been an email circulating that says they have to call this number uh, or in a certain time frame or their loan is going to, there's going to be consequences. But I wanted to let your listeners know that that is indeed a scam and that's not something that uh, the department has uh, taken on itself. So uh, as of now, we haven't had anybody contact us to say that they've been particularly affected, but just want to give everybody a heads up that if they do get those types of emails, that they should certainly reach out to the department or the student financial services. Appreciate that and your time. Thank you, Minister. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's uh, Crystalyn Howell, Liberal Member of St. Barbara Lance Meadows, of course, the Minister of Education. Want to pick up on what you heard there or change uh, gears after this break? Let's do it. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three and say good morning to the Zone Director of Primary Healthcare, Chronic Disease Prevention and Management. That's Erica Parsons. Good morning, Erica. You're on the air. 
Good morning, Patty. Happy to be here. I'm glad to have you on the program. That was a long title. I think I got it right because it doesn't even fit in my subject line necessarily. Yes, you got it right. And believe it or not, it used to be longer. So (laughs) we're working on shortening it. Okay. So inside of this, how related is your position to the whole Patient Connect list? So Patient Connect is a uh, public registry where people who do not have a healthcare provider, a family physician or nurse practitioner, can input their information and have their name added to our wait list so that when we have capacity to attach people to a primary care provider, family physician or nurse practitioner, we can identify them and we have their information to contact them for uh, attachment. So this is very much linked to the initiative with our family care teams and we're very excited to be launching our family care team in the Humber Valley White Bay area and ensuring that we are able to connect individuals who do not have a primary care provider to a healthcare provider at a time that is appropriate to meet their needs and wrap a full team of resources around them to help address their healthcare needs. Uh, that's how I got my family doctor. I'm at the Collaborative Care Clinic on Monday Pon Road, quite pleased with my doctor, but it took a while. I was on the list for maybe, I didn't track it carefully, but if it was around 10 or 11 months. Do we have the data as about how long people are waiting? And I'm sure it varies whether it be in this neck of the woods versus I think there's some $20 million in the most recent budget to expand to 10 more teams during the 23-24 calendar year. But do we have some wait time numbers on Patient Connect list? So for us in uh, the Western Zone and in relation to the Hummer Valley White Bay area, we absolutely do track our waitlist information. So right now we have about 800 people on our waitlist to be attached in the Humber Valley White Bay area. We already have uh, 2,800 patients attached, but you're right in that uh, sometimes there are very long wait times to be attached, and, and this is all related to capacity of our team to attach and how many healthcare providers we have hired onto our team. So we are in the process uh, while we are launching our team. We are pleased to say we have one physician and five nurse practitioners currently working. So we are attaching from from our wait list. However, there's many more staff and team members that we are focused on recruiting over the next several months. Uh, in order to be able to uh, support the full amount of people that that do require support, we're gonna be focused on hiring some additional physicians, nurse practitioners, registered nurses, licensed practical nurses, social workers, a physiotherapist, a pharmacist, and other support staff. So when our team is fully staffed, uh, we'll be able to support 9,000 patients uh, in total from the Humber Valley White Bay area. And our onboarding, or how fast we attach people from the wait list, will uh, speed up as we get more providers in our system and as we uh, secure some additional space to grow our team. Help us understand the recruitment process because I think the concept of team-based care just makes a lot of sense because I don't always need to see an MD, a nurse practitioner, a registered nurse, or other healthcare professional might be exactly what I need on that particular day. But the problem becomes... 
if we are simply moving healthcare professionals from one clinic to another, one hospital setting to the collaborative care clinic, we haven't necessarily expanded much because a bit of give here requires a bit of a take there. So talk us through recruitment. Is it simply going to register nurses already in the fold? Or is it about uh, taking advantage of some of the nurses that were recruited in India, for instance? So talk us through how the recruitment works. Sure. Well, there are multiple recruitment strategies that are in the works for sure, and we know we have many needs across our healthcare system. So we're working closely with the department and other uh, internal uh, program areas, different disciplines and professional associations to recruit the variety of healthcare workers that we need. I think, you know, for us, the focus is on offering a variety of different opportunities, knowing that different people are interested in different things uh, within their professional career and creating an environment that is supportive to students and learners. So one way that we have found great success in supporting recruitment into our healthcare system and the various different programs is by embracing students and offering opportunity for learners to work within our team environment. And, you know, we we know that there are multiple different uh, gaps within our system, both within the hospital and acute care, emergency departments, and in community-based care. It, it's not our goal to uh, take from one area to staff another. That doesn't solve our system crisis. But we, we need to be innovative and we need to uh, outreach. So, you know, we are looking at uh, recruitment in other provinces, countries, ensuring that the pathways are there so that people can get licensed in our province and that they can work within our, our professional pathways to help meet all of our career needs. So, And one other thing I think is important, you know, to acknowledge around recruitment, um, sometimes, you know, we do need to be innovative in how our positions uh, address the needs of the community. And depending on the area, if you're living and working in rural, you may have a, a bit of a broader scope than in a more urban area. So so we consider the, the whole system needs as best we can when we're looking at uh, setting up our positions. And some of that may even change now if we see how many full-time registered nurses will take on additional duties and the training required for referrals to specialists, diagnostic imaging, writing up prescriptions. So that's going to change the water on the beans, probably more in rural than it will in the urban setting. Let's, go, let's stick with recruitment for a second. So between conversations you may have with the minister's office and senior staff or Dr. Megan Hayes, who's got a pretty important job as the lead on recruitment and retention of healthcare professionals, there seems to be a bit of an underwhelming uh, commentary coming from professional schools like Munns Med School. Talk us through, like for me, you know, that's the captive audience. These are people that are being subsidized to be educated here in the province, and hopefully every single one of them stay in practice in their various disciplines here. What kind of recruitment effort do we have in nursing schools, nurse practitioners, Mons Med School, and radiation technologists and all the rest of it? Because some of them are leaving. Other provinces are getting out in front of us, offering them nice jobs with nice money and various incentives. Maybe we're losing some people we can keep. So talk us through the captive audience recruitment effort. Well, uh, I can speak broadly. I I don't work directly for the recruitment department. Uh, We do um, provide the opportunity to support recruitment and, you know, having a presence in schools and and making that connection uh, with our students. What I would say in relation to primary care or the community-based services, I think one of the biggest things is creating an environment 
where we know new learners and students want to work, there is a great desire among uh, you know our new physicians and, and other disciplines that want to work in a team-based setting. You know, the days are gone really when when you're out there you know alone like an island without you know other team supports and creating this environment through family care teams and strengthening connections with other community uh, programs like mental health and addictions, community support and public health really help to ensure that, you know, as a new provider entering into our system, that there are supports and and a team that's going to support you and your client to help with work-life balance and and a more enjoyable uh, atmosphere uh, to enter into. And I think that is really appealing uh, to a variety of different disciplines. So what I would say is that, you know, there are multiple different uh, incentives that the department have promoted for recruitment uh, internally. There, there is a, a recruitment department that is focused on uh, targeting uh, these uh, students and working with uh, professional institutions to ensure that we get our, our name and our opportunities out there and also getting information from uh, students and learners around, you know, what is it that would uh, make our province and our healthcare system more attractive and desirable to you. So it's, it's about finding out what they need as well. And the difference between recruiting out in uh, Deer Lake versus Burgio and St. Anthony and Happy Valley Goose Bay or a town, they're all different kentles of fish, which takes a real creative and intensive and comprehensive approach, I would imagine. Uh, Erica, it's really great to have you on the show. Would you like to offer anything else before we say goodbye? Uh, yeah, I would, I would also like to just stress the importance of if you are without a primary care provider or you know you will be without a primary care provider in the next three months or so, it's very important to go in on Patient Connect NL and, and put your information in there so that we know who you are. And then as we have the capacity to attach you to our team, you will be contacted directly and we can arrange that onboarding appointment. And in the meantime, if you live in the Western Zone and you do not have access to any healthcare support, we have a regional virtual care clinic where you can call a, a toll-free number, one 784 6256 and we can arrange a virtual appointment for you and we can start building that profile to get you ready for onboarding as we have capacity to attach you to a family care team in your area. Appreciate the time, Erica. Thank you very much. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Erica Parsons is the Western Zone Director of Primary Health Care and Chronic Pain Treatment and Management. I think that's what it was. Uh, okay. Let's go ahead and take a break. Uh, when we come back, Dana, you're next. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number four. Dana, you're on the air. Hi, Fanny. How you doing, buddy? Doing okay. How you doing? I'm not too bad, Fanny. Bye for four, fella. Glad to hear it. What's on your mind this morning? I'd just like to give a big thank you and love to the hospital staff at the Port Saunders Hospital. I mean, Patty's unbelievable staff and care you get here, right? I mean, they, they go away from me, from the kitchen staff to the cleaning staff to the people in the room. It's unbelievable care you get here at Port Saunders Hospital. And I, because I'm in hospital again for a few days, and I mean, it's because I wouldn't feel them the best, and I mean, it's unbelievable how they treat you here, boy. And I'd just like to give thanks to how much I appreciate them and love them and respect them. Well, I'm sure they appreciate the kind words from you. And so are you still admitted or have you been released? 
you know what I'm saying about that. And Patty, you know, I, I tell you, I, I get down sometimes to where I'm, I'm totally blind, you know that, from Max Sims. And where I had the stroke 15 years ago, I get down some, I got down the week because I, I'm, I used to play in the band. I wanted to play me in so bad and I couldn't. But you know what, Patty? You wouldn't believe the support and love I got around the Northern Play, Ox Bay Park, and Park, and I got for sure, right? Because I got the best friends and family in the world and the best support from the Park Sinus Hospital. And I just like to say I everyone that much. I love them, appreciate them, and thank them for being there with me all the time. Well, again, I'm sure they're very pleased to hear that from you. So what's the future look like, Dana? What's the prognosis? Are you going to be okay? Are you going to get released? No, yeah, I'm going to be okay. I just got a bit of an infection and cleared up and get home again. And I was just listening to the lady about, about the home care stuff. So so he went to good work, everybody. And, and like I said, then we got the sport I got, but he did have it made because, I mean, I tell you, from the local communities around the assembly, how they, how they support me and everything I does, Patty. Well, listen, you st- you take good care of yourself. Be well and stay in touch. And like like they said, I'd like to thank them all for being there for all the time and respect y'all and love you. And the best hospital around is Barnes Sanders. They're a great, wonderful staff. Good news. Stay in touch, Dana. Wish you well. Thanks. Thanks, Dana. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, there you go. Hopefully he's on the mend. Let's go to line number one. Scott, you're on the air. Hi, good morning. Morning to you. I, I was Patty this morning. Hanging in there. How about you? Uh, surviving, I guess. Living a dream. Had a boy. I don't know. The reason why I called, uh, and I'm not the only one, I'm after talking to a lot of my friends around here out on the bottom of this peninsula about this Eastling problem. Okay. What's happening? Uh, of course, now your bill keeps going up, and uh, what you sign in for, well, they got a lot of channels cut out. And uh, since the 1st of June, me and my girlfriend been at it. And I mean, any day that she's off, she have it on speakerphone or put it on a number to call back to, which we never do get one to come back to and get into. One lady called back yesterday, and, of course, the lady that called back, there was nothing she could do to help, and she put me through to a number which cut us off. And that seemed like... The dead ends we've been getting all along, and the numbers, the other channels that they did put on, most of them we already had, and we, and like I said, all the numbers I phone, and you just don't get out to know no more, not like it used to be. And I'm wondering if you guys heard of anyone or know of any direct numbers that we can get out to. You know what? I it wasn't. I can't remember how someone reached out to me on a very similar issue. Just as recently as a couple of weeks ago, uh, I tell you what, it's it's either on a Facebook message or a direct message on Twitter or maybe even an email. Like I remember exactly what they did, but they told me how they got some satisfaction. I'm going to have a look through all of those uh, mediums during the news break, and if I can find that contact number, Scott, I'll, I'll I'll give it to you. I'll get Dave to call you, or I'll call you back. But if anyone else out there listening has a path or a road to success or a solution with the uh, company, let's go ahead and provide Scott with some information. If I can get it or if anyone else provides us, Scott, we'll get it to you. I would much appreciate it, Patty, because like I said, uh, you know, uh, I've been with them like a lot of my friends and family, and they're having the same problem. They're going to get to the point where you can't get out to them even if you want to cancel and, say, go with a new provider. 
and uh, then there, someone's going to be in the lurch because everybody's been trying. And like I said, I got a, I, I'm sure there's at least two or three dozen family members and friends have been doing this as well. No doubt. You're not alone. And so if anyone can help me help you, I'll be more than happy to be the intermediary. And if I can find that number, I don't know where to really look, but I'll give it a good shot here during the news, Scott. I would much appreciate it, Patty. Good luck to you, sir. And thank you very much. My pleasure. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And this story's in the news, too. You talk about the telecoms. So this one's Bell. And there was a fellow who was hard of hearing, and he was trying to get some support because he lost his TV and Internet, as I think that was uh, written. And, you know, there's something called a live chat. So as opposed to being on the phone, you can, if you have maybe on your telephone or something or at your work computer, try to walk through some technical support issues with the form of a live chat, a little chat box on your screen. Bell says it's available across the country. You know, accessibility issues have been addressed and understood by the company. Da, 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 da. Turns out that service isn't available in this province. I don't think it's available throughout the entirety of Atlantic Canada, which goes to show you. It's all about customer base, right? It's how many people they have subscribing to their services, whether or not there's any additional infrastructure, you know, to expand, whether it be high-speed uh, high broadband or it's to improve cell service or accessibility issues. But you want to take that on or anything else under the sun, we can do it right after this. When we come back, Nate President Jerry Earl. I think we'll talk a little water bomber action and maybe a couple of issues we'll broach with the President and Nate right after the news. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the president of NAEP. That's Jerry Earl. Good morning, Jerry. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty, to you and your listening audience. So, of course, we're in the height of wildfire season. We've got an issue on the ground with some fitness training that was not passed. But let's talk water bombers. I'm having a hard time understanding exactly how we got to this point with only one of the four water bombers available. That was the case over the weekend. I don't know if anything has changed. Help us understand, is it because we lost pilots or the aircraft or in other provinces aiding with their wildfire combat? Or what exactly has led to this? Unfortunately, Patty, it's a situation where we're certainly not in other provinces right now because we cannot uh, have sufficient human resources uh, to maintain and staff the aircraft we have in our own province right now. So how we got here, that's something we keep asking. We were certainly looking to the former minister. Uh, one thing I don't mind giving credit where credit's due to the current minister uh, has sat down and met with us. I just had a communication with him moments ago. Uh, he's went out and met with these frontline staff at Boulder to Angers uh, and trying to take action but the problem is like you just said we're in the midst now uh, of a forest fire season and uh, just listening to the forecast as we come on here uh, just like our air ambulance service because it's a broad division uh, not just water bomber pilots it's there's air ambulance and then there's uh, engineers for example mechanics that maintain these aircraft uh, they're, they're cringing as we hear these forecasts that we're all looking um, or many of us looking forward to after the weeks ahead so pretty significant situation we're in uh, that had it been addressed before uh, and appropriately addressed, uh, we may not have been here, uh, but we can't look backwards now. We've got to figure out how can we fix this. And we've sat at the table, and our water bomber pilots themselves, our ground crews, have offered up solutions. Okay, so what are the solutions being proposed? Because is this all about pay, or is it about something else that is an intangible that maybe we don't have an understanding of? 
there's a number of things that happen with, like, air, like I said, because air services, while a small division, a significant and necessary division, like I said, it's waterborne pilots, or air ambulance pilots are facing similar situations but not getting that attention. Uh, even our ground crew, like these positions are like aircraft maintenance engineers and mechanics that repair and maintain these. Uh, we see shortage across these. So, uh, some of the solutions that we've looked at, yeah, it involves recognizing people in Newfoundland and Labrador the same as they've been recognized elsewhere and not having to rely on federal legislations to even get something as simple as a day off. Uh, right now, for example, we have one water bomber crew uh, that's available. Uh, but one of the pilots that's actually about to respond to a fire, I believe, outside of Glenwood, he will be on mandatory time off as of Friday. And the federal regulations, Patty, requires him to be off work for five days. Luckily, a person has a mandatory time right now can return on Friday. Uh, but again, we have four aircraft right now that need to be staffed and need to have the ground crews to support it. A fifth one should have never been parked since 2018. So we weren't even attempting to staff what we add, uh, and that's uh, gravely concerning. But as it, we're in the midst of the season now when everybody have done the recruiting, doing everything they can to keep the staff they have, the pilots and the ground crew. So we're trying to get people to come in from other areas, which is extremely challenging. This should have been done uh, much earlier in the year. In the world of pay, it's for some it's the be-all and end-all, not necessarily for everybody, regardless of what we're talking about, but where are we, comparatively speaking, with other provinces? Let's just say from Ontario East, because if you've been you know, incentivized to move your highly, uh, highly attractive skills and precision work that they do to other provinces because of money, so where are we in a comparative world? Comparative, when we move outside of Atlantic Canada, and I actually, we surface most of Atlantic Canada when people don't realize, I think the only place in Atlantic Canada with water bombers would be in New Brunswick. You see, we pretty well sent our full fleet to Nova Scotia. Uh, the next province thing we'd have to look at is Quebec and Ontario, and we are not competitive. I wouldn't be able to give you the exact amount off the top of my head, but we're talking a significant percentage, of, a significant discrepancy in our pilots, air ambulance, uh, water bomber, and ground crew. Uh, so it is quite significant. And I'm understanding it's 20% plus discrepancy uh, in the differential. And then when we step out into the private sector where these pilots, oily qualified, are leaving to go to, uh, it's just off the charts, uh, non-comparable, because these pilots are being attracted, knowing the skills that they have. Uh, they have an asset, as does the maintenance crews, that can be utilized anywhere in North America, anywhere in the world, basically. So they're being recruited, and we're not doing enough to retain them. And you've always heard, heard me, I think, flip around and say government and employers have it recruitment retention. I always flip it and say it's retention, then recruitment. You have to keep what you have and find a way. And some of it is not even, like, people don't realize as a pilot, I just talked about mandatory five days off. You realize during the entire forest fighter season, that's the only way they get time off. They actually don't have a schedule where, like you or I or most in general population, say, I'm off this Friday or Saturday or Sunday, unless it's mandatory by federal regulations, they don't get any time off. So even that alone is an issue that we've had people leave over. 
And of course, when we're talking about Transport Canada, that would be an issue water bomber pilots throughout the entire country would Absolutely. be dealing with. Absolutely. Okay, so that's one thing. And do you want to say anything else about the water bomber fleet? Even though I know it's extremely important, I just wanted to move off to another area as well. No, Patty, like I said, and just, and we got to remember when we're talking about water bombers, like it's a division of government air services. And while it's right now in forest fire season, we're talking about the water bombers. Our air ambulance crews are facing this. And like I said, our ground crews, these are oddly skilled professionals as well that is employed across the sector. So again, the focus is on pilots, but again, it's the entire division. Uh, like I said, uh, an F- absolutely essential and critical division that it has to be looked at in its totality not just a specific group and I think that's sometimes where government fails to look at they deal with the urgent thing but not considering all things are linked. I'm, st- I'm still trying to get numbers about just how many firefighters on the ground did not pass their fitness test and whether or not they're actually working to improve their fitness or they're not allowed to work because I mean if we've got a problem on the ground and a problem in the air we've got a big problem so we I'm trying to find those numbers. Uh, anyway, this is, I don't even know how to approach this, but look, not everyone is built to deal with the heat, but you represent people working in congregate, congregate living settings and maybe at the penitentiary and what have you. So what kind of accommodations are in place and what does it mean for their ability to do their jobs? Because not everywhere is cooled off. Not everywhere has a mini split. Not everywhere has air conditioning. I know this is not the biggest topic in the world, but if it compromises their ability to adequately look after inmates or residents or patients, then we've got ourselves a problem that's going to be as big as the heat is the heat and the humidity index is today absolutely Patty. there's a number of facilities in newfoundland labrador like you just touched on we have correctional facilities we have long-term care facilities the newer ones uh, certainly have appropriate cooling systems uh, actually in some of the newer ones the cooling systems actually don't work that effectively have had issues which is surprisingly but we have facilities where uh, what's offensive sometimes all the front line and the residents the office areas are cooled uh, but the units where the residents are and the staff that's doing 12 16 18 24-hour shifts have no cooling and the simple solution they usually offer sometimes as well we'll pass out more cold drinks and we'll make sure that the staff can take a couple of extra breaks go in somewhere like the HMP and again we've had extensive con- consultation since I'd say probably February now uh, when we really put the pressure on saying this had to be dealt with. So finally they're doing some temporary maintenance that hopefully will assist there. I'm not sure what it's going to do when we're talking humidity factors 36, 38 uh, and they've actually dedicated and we're sat down we just met as very recent but, uh, and I know some of the people out there will again probably roll their eyes but the ultimate solution with someone like the HMP it just has to replaced, what that's costing to even upkeep, and not that piece alone, the physical and mental effect on the correctional officers and the healthcare staff that work there, and the inmates themselves. It is absolutely unbearable, inhumane, and should have been dealt with years ago, and again, we're putting pressure saying it has to be addressed for health and safety, and again, I can't believe in long-term care residents, we didn't have the foresight some years ago to make sure at least we had, uh, even though we have short summers, uh, the tolerance to eat, especially when you're aged or have disabilities, is that much more in pronounced. So uh, I, I can't even imagine some of those facilities. We've already heard from some saying, I'm not sure what we're going to do if these temperatures stay high for the next few days. And it, it, it's concerning. 
It really is. And, you know, we extend that. This is not a NAEP issue, but cooling no, no, centres, no. we talk about protection during the winter months from the elements, but this kind of heat, whether it be for the downtown core or different parts of the province, for places for people to get in somewhere out of this extraordinary heat as opposed to wandering around the mall or the grocery store or what have you, there's a municipal role to be played. Uh, I appreciate the time this morning. Jerry. anything else you want to say? No, and I share that, Patty, because we always look at those institutions and just out in the community, like when you see homeless people making sure uh, there are cooling centres and the solution should not be, well, let's go in, in the metro area to Avalon Mall and Grandfall Windsor to Mall to get cool down for the day. Uh, those facilities close 8 or 9 o'clock in the evening, so it's got to be a longer-term solution. So, again, I just want to thank you for the opportunity and thank the listening audience. Appreciate the time, Jerry. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Ask Jerry Earl. He's the president at NAEP. Let's get another one before we go to the break. Line number three. Chris, you're on the air. Hello. How you doing today? Okay. How you doing? Good. Um, I want some information on that... Uh the heat we built, uh, the heat we built, we uh, built for 164. Uh, post went to the bank on July, July, July the 21st. Um, do you know uh, what what that's all about? Uh, uh, who's entitled for it or who's not? Okay, so you're talking about the carbon tax rebate? Yes. I'm single. I'm 55 years old. And I got diabetes type 2. So I'm trying to find if I'm entitled for that or what. You are. We all are. There's a bump uh, for different r- more rural, remote parts of the province, but you are entitled. Are you set up with CRA for a direct deposit? Yeah, yeah BMO. Yeah, but you BMO have direct thing. deposit with the CRA. Yes. Okay. Yes, I do, yes. So you'll get a direct deposit on the 21st. In two days' time. On the 21st. Yeah, Friday. Uh, is that only one time only? No, it's quarterly. It'll be uh, the same amount uh, four times a year. So, uh, with uh, GST? No, it's it's not. Uh, the, it's different from GST. Okay. So, it'll be on the 21st of every month, uh, every three months. That's right. Every three months. Okay. And uh, the groceries... Uh, uh, food rebate uh, is that uh, every three months with uh, added on to the GST? No, that was once, just one time only. That as currently rollout, the rollout includes is just that one time on the fifth of July. Fifth uh, of July, so it won't be known in October or January. No. Okay. Anyway, thank you, sir. No. Thank for spend spend some time to talk to you. My pleasure, Chris. Stay in touch. Uh, bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. All right, uh, ah, there we go. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're going to Munda to talk about the $10 million from the government for a one-time, one-year-only coverage of the campus renewable fee. That's not enough, says Monsu. John Harris is the Director of External Affairs. He's in the queue. Then we're going to talk a little health care and the most recent housing report. Talk away. Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number four, say good morning to the Director of External Affairs with the Memorial University Student Union. That's John Harris. John, you're on the air. Hey, how's it going, Patty? Best kind. How about you? Pretty good, pretty good. So, uh, yeah, I just wanted to call talk about the $10 million and the one-time payment to, to MUN. Uh, you know, so what, what we're seeing is that, you know, we had a $68.4 million cut uh, that really affected us last semester when tuition doubled. We saw 20% less first-year enrollment in the undergraduate program. And uh, what we're seeing now is a temporary one-year drop of the campus renewal fee, which was a bad fee to begin with. Uh, we're getting about $500 in savings for uh, for full uh, full 
course load. But we're still facing the, the $3,000 up charge uh, from the doubling of tuition for domestic students and still facing $8,000 more for uh, for uh, the international students. So well, at the end of the day, this is, is it, it, while we welcome this step in the direction, it's, it's not a permanent solution and it's it's really not enough. You talk about, and I think this is a quote from you, about getting rid of the fee entirely. With Memorial University, with their revenue stream, is pretty fundamental where the money's come from, whether it be fees or tuition. So going back to a tuition freeze, does that mean it's entirely incumbent on the provincial government to figure this out with the reinstating of the almost $70 million? Or do you think there's something the university can and should be doing? Because their revenue stream is pretty defined. Well, I, I, I believe that, you know, universities should be funded by the government. I, I think the language around subsidizing uh, really only comes around the, the university conversation. You know, we don't talk about subsidizing high schools or elementary schools because they're funded programs, right? And we need to look at university the same way. This is an investment in the, like Krista Howell said, investment in the leaders and, and the innovators of the future, which is young people. And it's an investment in this province. I mean, I think we, we used to look at the retention rates that, that Mun gave us uh, uh, and they were very, very good. And they, they help us keep students and young people in the province. They help, uh, you know, generate uh, it's an economic driver. It, it helps us have enough uh, workers for, for programs. And when we have a 20% drop in enrollment, like, that's a, that's a bad direction to go, go down when we need an educated workforce, right? The government is want to do the old comparative issue, and I think there's something to it because, you know, the unfortunate reality is universities across North America and many other parts of the developed world have turned as much into a business as they are as institutions of higher learning, and I think that's really unfortunate for a variety of reasons. But what do you make of the government saying, well, if we're students from this province or around Atlantic Canada or the rest of the country or students from abroad, and they will look at what prog- uh, schools they'd like to attend, and they'll do comparative on tuition and we still will be very competitive if you listen to the government language how do you hear that and is that not a realistic uh, approach that they take on that front well, I mean, if we look at students in, say, rural Newfoundland, say, around uh, Cornerbrook, you got the decision of taking the ferry over to Halifax and choosing a school there uh, or staying in the province and, and having a life here. And when it comes down to comparative, you know, we had that low tuition because it was so attractive to the people of this province to stay here and to bring people in. Uh, by, by having it comparable to the, the rest of the country, which, you know, I don't, I don't really think the comparison is, is, is always helpful when it comes to Newfoundland. I think we have... Uh, uh, you know, special needs uh, given our uh, economic situation with median income. We we have a, a particular set of uh, needs economically that that make us you know unique. Uh, I, I think that when we have a comparative, and I, I still believe it's uh, you know for international students, it's still the the highest in Atlantic Canada. Uh, we're going to see people going elsewhere. You know, it's it's not it's not a uh, we already seen a drop of twenty percent enrollment. We're going to see people going elsewhere. And, and if they can't afford it, they're just not going to get a university education, which uh, I think is a really sad thing. Uh, you know, I think everybody knows why Memorial was created in the first place uh, to, to get give Newfoundland and Labradorians a chance to to get an education. And and I think we're we're drawing away from that. And and I agree with you. I think business should not be the priority of a university. It should be educating young people. Inside that 20%, do we have a breakdown of how many would be from this province or the rest of the country or international students? Do we understand where how that 20% is uh, represented? 
No, I, I, I'm not sure the, the breakdown. I'm, I'm waiting to get information from that from the, the provost. Uh, but we do know in the undergraduate program, we've seen, I think it's 19.1%, so I'm just rounding it up, but uh, 20% drop of enrollment when tuition was doubled, which I think is a, is a pretty scary trend. If, if we're looking at 20% over long term, if that continues, it's, it's going to be a huge uh, drop in, in, in graduates. And this is all for tongue-in-cheek. That's a fair roundup from 19.1 to 20. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. And you talk about government supports. You know, there's a very similar amount of money going from the provincial government to Memorial University in this province as there is in Nova Scotia with the similar amount of money going to 10 universities. So the same amount of money funding one versus the same amount of money supporting 10. So it's interesting when you look at the comparative world once again. Inside tuition freeze, you know, it felt good, but it was inevitable at some point, unless government was going to be all in forever and a day, there was going to be some point where there was a straw breaking the camel's back. What we did do is we froze tuition, but we increased fees, because I don't think students really care if it was tuition or a student fee or a campus renewal fee, it's money. And if I have to sign and write a check for money, I'm not sure I care what the breakdown is, but the tuition is a tax write-off. The fees are not. Do you think that we can apply some sort of gradual incremental increase in tuition so that it can be an incremental increase tax write-off and control fees at the same time? Because that's what they did. There was a tuition freeze, so they rose the fees. You know, And so consequently, yeah. if I'm writing a check for Jack Daly to go to university, I couldn't care less what the breakdown looks like. I care what the sum is. So do you think we had a bit of a misstep with not including that tactical approach versus a, the sacrosanct, the, spirit, the, sacri- uh, the sacrificial cow, and you couldn't talk about tuition because it was the be-all and end-all? I think it was a miscalculation. How about you? Well, I, I think that's a really good point about the, the way that uh, things are taxed. Uh, I think the problem with the tuition freeze was that because government's funding, you know, stayed the same, uh, when when you keep the same funding uh, to any kind of institution because of inflation, that's a, a that's a cut every single year. You're going to have less money to work with. So, I, I, and when Memorial's administration, you know, uh, I have my criticisms of them, but you know, they've been put in a hard place in some occasions where uh, there is crumbling infrastructure. They need to the have money for operations, and they made the decision to put that on the backs of students with these kinds of fees. Uh, and then ultimately, the 20-year-long tuition freeze, which I, I think for, for its critics, it gave uh, and people and parents in this province the ability to know for confidence uh, how much money to put away for their kids' education. So they, they had they had we know that we're going to need uh, 3000 a year for a degree. So they started saving. And all of a sudden, it doubled. And the families that had saved up for that kind of tuition freeze rate were now hit with twice as much money. Uh, a lot of families with two or three kids, they didn't put away that much money. They, and, and in this economy, like who can? So the, the, the problem is uh, not with the tuition freeze itself, but the, the freeze of funding. Uh, we need to, to believe in, in this university by giving it the money it needs to, to provide a high-quality education for an accessible rates. And people talk about free tuition, which I think is a gift to the rich, to be honest. But, you know, if, I'm the, if I had a job with any authority, which I'm so pleased that I don't, is 
you know, the, the way to save for education through a registered education plan is one of the best uh, vehicles for piling up the money. 20% from the federal government on the first $2,000 per year, free money, on top of even before it gets invested. If I'm in the province, I add to that pile. So that I would, I would encourage families to save, even if it's 10 bucks a month. It goes a long way over the course of 17 years after your child is born. That's another way where the province can do something, but also, you know, co-opt that responsibility with families, because it, it doesn't take 100 bucks a month to save up to go to Memorial University. My boys had money left over in their RESP because of the affordability issue. So I think government can play a role there as opposed yeah, to I, fully, full all in on tuition freeze. But anyway, I'll get your final thoughts, John, before I have to go. Yeah, I, I think I, I agree with you there. The the It didn't used to take a, that much money to save on the RSVP or RSSPs, uh, whatever it's called. Uh, it, but now it's it's different. It's, it's twice as much. Uh, I think that we're uh, really going to see a, a a serious moment for the university whether or not it's going to continue to to be able to provide this level of education uh for students if we don't do something about the 68.4 million dollar cut uh, this is an annual cut uh, this 10 million dollars is a one-time payment it's really a drop in the bucket if you look at uh over several years uh so it, we need some action and i want to remind uh, the premier he, he did make a promise to reevaluate the tuition offset grant uh and i'd like to see some more progress on, on that front as well appreciate the time thanks john thanks patty have a good one you too man bye-bye john harris director of external affairs with munsu let's take a break when we come back jim din he's the member for the ndp member for st john center and the leader of the party to talk about the most recent ccpa housing report then eugene manning he wants to be the next leader of the progressive conservative party talking about health care and we have been talking about the heat look sometimes weather is a bit of an eye roller kind of conversation but there's things we need to know about the impact for children big guys my age the elderly regarding not only the temperature but the humidity index which does have an appreciable impact and you have to be able to recognize when it's going a little bit sideways for you and what you can do about it michael pretty he's a, uh, an instructor with the canadian red cross he's also in the queue don't go away your voice in newfoundland and labrador's biggest conversation if you want to know what's happening in your province tune in to open line every day have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m on open line with patty daly on your vocm Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number one, say good morning to the NDP member for St. John's Centre. He's the leader of the party. That's Jim Din. Jim, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Thank you for having me. No problem. Beautiful day out. Tis that. And I do share your concerns with this hot weather for uh, people just trying to keep cool, especially anyone who doesn't have ventilation or uh, air conditioning. Uh, I know it's worthwhile to keep checking in on those people who might be vulnerable. Yeah, I've had a couple of people send me eye-roll emails like, my God, there's big issues. Yeah, but let's just consider what some of the heat wave implications have been across the country as recently as last year. Something like 66 seniors died in B.C. during the heat wave. It's not untoward to think that maybe there's a potential problem brewing when the humidex is in the 40s. I agree. We're anyway. at, uh, yeah, no, no, I totally agree. People are vulnerable, just as vulnerable as they are in the, in the wintertime as well. So that's yep. a good point. Anyway, I just want to head to, uh, to have a quick chat about the, uh, the the latest report that's been report, uh, the CCP report on affordable housing. It sort of echoes uh, many of the concerns I've raised. You and I have spoken about it on a number of occasions, but it, uh, it, it certainly echoes the concerns and the issues we're seeing um, when it comes to uh, around wage, uh, a livable minimum wage, uh, about the low supply of rental housing that's purpose-built uh, and more or less for uh, social housing, not non-market. 
uh, and also uh, the uh, poorly regulated rental market that uh, basically prioritizes profit over the, uh, the uh, of housing security. Uh, I guess on a very personal level, it was interesting. Uh, last night I was meeting with a group of people uh, with regard on um, a basic income, and talking to the individuals there. It comes down to a very real struggle. These were single uh, ma mothers who had ch uh, children uh, those with, with disability and trying to make ends meet with uh, in housing that was supposed to be affordable, but they were challenged. And uh, I, without, you know, I, all I can tell you is that it was heart wrenching to listen to their stories of what they've had, what, they, what, how they're trying to make ends meet or what they can afford in food. Uh, and that's just with the with uh, income support. Uh, and those who are on minimum wage and may not have other supports, it's going to be it's going to be just as difficult, maybe more so. I will tell you this, it's interesting. Back uh, 10 years ago, when I was president of the Society of St. Vincent de Paul, St. Teresa's Conference, we decided to get into uh, affordable, uh, not uh, non-market, not-for-profit housing. It was uh, like sort of like the dog that chased the bus and caught the bus, and uh, we end up with that. So we do have a six-unit affordable um, uh, housing unit uh, project in, within the city. And here's the thing, I guess, wh why I see this as an an as a part of the answer is that regardless of whether uh, supplier demand, whatever the supplier demand is, whether, you know, it's, it's the rent has stayed the same. And what it has allowed is that the people who are renting there, renting, have some stability in their lives. They're able to afford other, uh, to even afford the necessities. But rent is kept low, under $600. The money then is, whatever money is taken in is reinvested back into the property. It's not necessarily, it's not going to, uh, to line, uh, to, uh, uh, line the pockets of the society. It's basically very much how do we maintain an affordable, um, stable, safe uh, living environment. Compare that to three seniors who contacted me earlier this month who are telling me, uh, in one apartment who are telling me that as of this past uh, January, their rents went up by 250 from 700 to $950 a month. And it's going to go up another 250 this January. So it's going to go, uh, within a year, let's say, it's jumped from 700 to 1200 And these are seniors who are on fixed incomes as well. So what we have here, we might have, a, uh, we're seeing exorbitant increases, which is, uh, which is driving people who are uh, on fixed incomes or on small incomes. Uh, I don't know how you could do this. Uh, if you're on a fixed income, there's no opportunity for you to uh, increase that fixed income unless you go back to work. Uh, and those who are on minimum wage, it's it's going to become a significant uh, it's going to be a significant challenge as well. But what we're seeing in the market uh, uh, housing is that rents are going up uh, faster and outstripping uh, outstripping income, and it's jeopardizing jeopardizing people's health in that they they they're not paying for uh, their medication if they need it, and they're definitely not eating well. And the, I guess what I saw last night was the level of stress um, uh, that people are under, just trying to help. And one 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 woman was a grandmother who was trying to help her daughter uh, just keep her children housed as well, and she was on a on a limited income. That's the struggle. Uh, understood. And you know, I also took it a step further because. 
Minimum wage and the direct relationship to affordability for rent and or getting into a mortgage is one part of the conversation. You know, it's the issue about rent regulations. You know, rent control versus vacancy control versus, you know, dissuading developers for trying to catch up in this purpose-built world. It's a complicated issue. It doesn't seem to me, looking around, that anything works perfectly because if, let's say, in PEI, they have a maximum of 2.5% increase per year as per their rent controls. Then there's other properties that have vacancy controls where between leases, they have a maximum a landlord can jack up the rent. But then there's clear examples. When rent control came to the province of Ontario, developers stopped building. And so we settled it on one front for folks who are currently renting, but maybe jeopardize the next wave of renters with even access to a unit. So that is the epitome of a double-edged sword. Works for me today, maybe not for me tomorrow. No, and we, and, but there is there's a, a plenty of evidence to show too that uh, as vacancy rates as vacancy rates uh, increase, rents shoot up significantly. As they decrease, rents actually drop. So it, it, I, I I know what you're saying. Uh, I, I and there is evidence there certainly to show that the, it, that it's it, it may not be a, a, that it may not be the disincentive a, as we uh, as we think it to be. However, I think Patty, to your point, it comes down to then uh, like what is the uh, there's a place for the there's a place for the uh, the market housing but when it comes to affordable housing I think there is an issue there that that, that has to be addressed because uh, like if, if you're earning an adequate income uh, and your or your your income is sufficient that you you, you know you can absorb these uh, these increases that's one thing but if you're already on the margins uh, even a even an in, a increase of fifty dollars a month it's going to be a significant uh, challenge to you so there's got to be something there uh, and a uh, uh, with regards to address this, and certainly the report highlights, I guess, three things: uh, things that we've been after, uh, like when it comes to a minimum wage that's indexed to the cost of living. Um, maybe we, what we need to, uh, to do, similar to what the federal government was doing between the 60s and the 80s, in investing in um, uh, a, a construction of new, of new social housing. They got out of it from the eight, 1984 onward uh, to 1994. It dropped off, and since then, it's been left to the provinces to. Uh, to uh, come up with this, and they haven't uh, haven't been able to or, or unwilling to uh, to do that. So there's a there's a there's a mixture of uh, there's a mixture of uh, uh, I guess of solutions here, Incre- making sure that the what, what uh, the way what minimum wage is indexed so that people can live, um, and that the report the report highlights as well. And may also look at how do we include uh, increased uh, supply of non-market housing for those who are needed, so that there is that it creates a capacity. And also, then, when it comes to what do we need to regulate the the market so that a developer is not charging seniors in a in their play a five hundred dollar a five hundred dollar increase within a year. That that to me is a a bit excessive. I understand the need to maintain to maintain you know the profit margins in the market in the market economy, but that to me is excessive, especially when you're dealing with people who will have nowhere to go in this province because the uh, the vacancy rates just aren't there. Appreciate the time, Jim. Thank you. Thank you. Take care, Patty. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Jim Din is the NDP leader and member for St. John's Centre. I just try to get back on track with the break. Uh, both Michael and Eugene, we appreciate your patience. We'll get to you after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Where would you like me to go, David Williams? All right, five. Let's go to line number five. Uh, joining Tony Wakeham and Lloyd Parrott, wanting to be the next leader of the PC Party of Newfoundland and Labrador is Eugene Manning, and he joins us on five. Eugene, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you handling the heat? 
hanging tough, buddy. I'm not necessarily built for it physically or mentally, but here we are. No, my complexion doesn't work very well with it either. All the freckles I have. Uh, you were saying about uh, heat in hostels and stuff. Another issue, Paddy, this morning is we've been put on notice, me personally. Uh, a lot of daycares are about to close in the city. They're, uh, they don't have the infrastructure for air conditioning. After a certain temperature, they are forced to close, which is another issue we'll be facing in the coming days. I hadn't heard that, but that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It's funny enough, my, when my wife said to me before I left this morning, she said, uh, she keep your phone on. Uh, it could be a change. And it speaks to infrastructure and long-term planning as well, Patty. This is, you know, it looks like this is going to be something we'll be dealing with annually now and something how we grow and how we build and further infrastructure, whether it be the new mental health facility or the penitentiary, things to build in the dress and make sure that we're covering those things. Um, but uh, just as an aside, I heard earlier, Patty, while I was listening, um, Erica Parsons, I think it was, Patient Connect NL, and um, the patient wait list and 800 people waiting to get a primary care uh, uh, physician and uh, 2,800 are already attached. A great initiative, um, and I, I applaud her for it and I applaud her work. I think it, uh, it speaks to a larger issue around the fact that we have to put these things in place and the government has been doing great work in that regard. But unless we address some of the underlying concerns in reducing the work, I shouldn't say reducing the workload, but addressing how we deliver healthcare in the province, uh, the doctor and primary care and the the shortage in healthcare professionals doesn't exist just here in the province. It exists across the country and across the world. So we have to really look at how we deliver healthcare in this province. It's no good for me to come out as a politician in this leadership campaign and say, I guarantee you a primary care provider or I guarantee to reduce wait lists. Unless we have a plan of attack on Patty, it's just empty words. And the reason I was calling this morning is I wanted to talk to you a bit about um, advanced care directives. I don't know if you're familiar with living wills and uh, and and how the process uh, goes about. So much, yeah, sure. Yeah. So, uh, and once again, there's some information online. The government has been started doing some work in this regard, and I believe now, if you're headed into a, a senior's home, and whatnot, uh, they address it with you. But there are jurisdictions, Patty, where anyone over the age of 35 is highly encouraged. In some places, mandated to have a living will. And it's a, not a new idea, but it's something that's come to the fore. And for those that don't know, a living will is to say how you want your care to be provided essentially in your, in your last months and last years of life. Because the challenge becomes when you end up in an acute healthcare crisis and a decision is left to your next of kin, it creates a real moral distress both, both on your next of kin and on primary care providers of having that conversation of essentially what care your parent or your child ever wants to have. However, they're not even recognized by law here. No, and, and this is a so this is a, a much a much larger conversation because the challenge is if I'm if I'm next to kin, say to a parent, and I'm in a room and they are saying, What do you want to do for mom and dad? I will say do everything in your power necessary to keep them alive. However, uh, in some jurisdictions, so if you sit down with someone, and let's take the age of thirty five, I'm taking a, a model out of lacrosse, Wisconsin actually, uh, where this was ran through. And if you sit down with people and you discuss with them when it is not acute and it is not at the fore, and they say, if you reach a point where treatments will extend your life by a few days or a few months, but the side effects are going to be very serious, do you want to continue with that treatment, or would you prefer just to be made comfortable and live out your remaining days in peace? Now, the next kin will never say, pull the plug on mom or dad or any of these things. They'll say, do whatever you can. The patient themselves will often say, listen, I want to be made comfortable and enjoy my remaining days. There's... It has so many side effects. First of all, 
it relieves a lot of the moral distress on your children or your next of kin and the primary care providers because they know exactly what your wishes are headed into that. The, the other byproduct of that is that it relieves pressure on the healthcare system in the fact that those acute care tests and surgeries in your last days, most people, when given the choice, and you have that choice, but they will choose to be put into long-term care and to be made comfortable and live out the remaining days. This is, it relieves- Eugene, this is a, a strangely specific issue with improving the healthcare system. What do you think the appreciable impact would be? Because these are basically non-resuscitation orders, right? And those types of things and other things about your, your wishes and wants during various stages of acute illness. So, again, very specific, but what do you think the actual impact would be? And not everybody in the family is going to say, oh, yes, do everything you can, because at some point reality also kicks in that there is no hope, and maybe, just maybe, being drugged up is, you know, living in a shadow of your former self, and maybe, you know, there's a variety of moving parts, but what do you think the real impact would be? In, in that particular in that particular place in in that county in uh, in Wisconsin, Patty, they became one of the lowest cost providers per patient healthcare in the country. Um, it became a, a massive boom, even though it was the the project was spearheaded by the chaplain, if you will, and it was spearheaded completely from a perspective of uh, giving people the care they wanted and relieving that moral distress. The economics became a complete byproduct just by the fact of what people were choosing. And I think my point is we have to look at how we deliver care and we have to look at the little wins across the board because coming back to your conversation with Eric, with Ms. Parsons earlier, um, if we, we can create all these things in collaborative care clinics and whatnot, however, if we don't have the primary care providers and we don't have the doctors and we are not finding to, to clear that backlog, we are only uh, just moving, shuffling people around. I had a friend, Nick, uh, he couldn't get into his family doctor. He tried the collaborative care clinic on Monday Pond Road last month, and who did he get? He ended up getting his doctor who had shut down his clinic for the day to help out with the collaborative care. That's not alleviating the backlog. That is just, you no, know, I, I applaud the efforts, but it's not solving in our underlying problems. We have to look at different solutions in how we approach it. Yeah, and I, I mean, think if you look sure. I, I mean, I speak to that all the time. We're just shifting professionals around doesn't necessarily alleviate the concerns or the wait times or the backlogs. Uh, before I run out of time here, anything else you want to say about healthcare before we move on, Eugene? No, sure. Okay. So very clearly, different parties have different relationships or allegiances with their federal counterparts. It's been pretty clear on the NDP side for a number of years. There's been a love, not so in love relationship between uh, local PCs and federal PCs. The liberals seem to be very much in lockstep. Many of our own liberal MHAs uh, supported and campaigned on behalf of their federal uh, liberal members of parliament or candidates for uh, federal uh, parliament representation. On your front... You, you have been visiting and have gone to a Mr. Poliev rally, and I don't care who anyone supports, but there's been a very public outcome because of it. Someone who was on side and aligned with you, given how Mr. Poliev talks about some issues regarding LGBTQ, some people that he's uh, bit, spent time with, and I'm not going to judge who he had a photograph taken with necessarily, but because of that relationship, one person in particular, I'll leave his name out of it unless you want to add it, has walked away given some of those social conservative issues that Mr. Poliev has taken a stance on. Your reaction, and are, is it fair to say that you are in Mr. Polyev's camp? Well, I'm a member of the Conservative Party of Canada, yes, and uh, I, there, that's been no secret for a long time. No, 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 I'm not saying that that's the issue, but I mean, there's members of the party who are not necessarily supportive of Mr. Polyev. Maybe some of them signed up because they wanted to support Mr. Charest, for instance. So it doesn't mean everyone supports uh, Trudeau if you're a member of the Liberal Party or consequently Polyev if you're a member of the CPC. 
No, fair enough. But I support the leader of the CPC as as speaking of signing up for Sheree, I worked on Mr. Sheree's campaign, but uh, uh, Pierre Polyev's leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, and I support the goals and objectives of the Conservative Party of Canada. I'm, right now, I'm calling in seeking the leadership of the PC Party of Newfoundland and Labrador. But, Patty, to a larger issue there, let's talk about the dynamics of politics here in the province. Uh, we have, in, in my own leadership race, the three campaigns have put out ads and are advocating for the elimination of the carbon tax. We're uh, advocating for a rework of Bill C-69. We're trying to champion our LNG, our oil industry. In the next federal campaign, the choice for prime minister is going to be Justin Trudeau or Pierre Polyev. At the moment, it looks like I'm going to be the only candidate that is going to be campaigning against Justin Trudeau in that election. I'm campaigning for whichever campaign I think is going to be the best for Newfoundland and Labrador. I don't think the carbon tax is good for Newfoundland and Labrador. I don't think restricting our offshore resources is good for Newfoundland and Labrador. And I don't see anything coming out of Justin Trudeau or the Liberal camp that says that they support those goals. So, I mean, it's a clear question. I get it. And coming back to um, my volunteer in the campaign, um, as you know, and not to if you want to leave his name out of it, um, he approached me a number of years ago. Me and him had sat down, had a great conversation about where we saw the, the province, in particular the city, uh, headed. We agreed on many of those fronts, and I agreed to run his campaign. And he knew at the time I was conservative, a member of the Conservative Party of Canada, and uh, he was for a period of time as well. We gave him a very good shot. He ran a very solid campaign. I'm very proud of the work that we've done. In the last couple of weeks, he's had a, a, a change of heart as to my affiliation with the Conservative Party of Canada. But, uh, Patty, look, um, he's free to make his own decisions. I was, I was sad to see him go, but um, that's it. And I, but I still support him because I think he has a good vision for the city and the province. And to be clear on my front, this happens across uh, the various parties. This is not just you and Mr. Poli have a conversation. If people do not like the association between the provincial liberals and the federal liberals or have a dislike of uh, the Prime Minister, that's baggage that people wear. It's just kind of inevitable, right? So if someone doesn't like what Trudeau has done but would have normally voted for the Liberal candidate here provincially, but because of their allegiance or alliance or relationship, they decide otherwise. Same thing with Mr. Singh and NDP members here. So this is not to isolate the Conservatives because this is the exact same thing, maybe to different levels of severity, across all three of the major parties. Well, Patty, like at the end of this race, one of the three of us is going to be the next leader of the PC party, Newfoundland number door. I expect on the, the day after, I will still be a strong supporter of the PC party, Newfoundland Labrador, independent of outcome. And I would support any leader. Um, obviously, I, I, I do expect and I do hope that it's going to be me. And I, I expect my competitors to do the same. But I think that's how we work in a party system here in, in Canada. And uh, I, I don't, I'll put it to you this way. I won't say something different to you today than I will to someone else tomorrow. And Pierre Polyev was here for a PC fundraiser last month uh, where he raised considerable amount of money for us. And I believe uh, me and my, my two competitors were there cheering him out at the time. So, I mean, to, to change your view depending on the day of the week, I find that to be very troubling. To be quite honest, Patty, it's why I got involved in this race in the first place. It's time for someone to live by their decisions. And if, if, you, if me and you tend to disagree, that's fine. We can live with that. But you'll know where I stand, and I won't change it tomorrow, depending on what I hear in the news today. Yeah, I don't know if your comments there were aimed at me or somebody else, but uh, I think it's pretty clear what I think about stuff here on, on this particular program. Eugene, I'm off to the news. I'm late for that, but I appreciate your time. Appreciate it. Just wanted uh, a fellow candidate, Lloyd Powers, had a bit of a, a health setback there. Right. Uh, politics aside, I just want to wish him all the best in the speedy recovery and hope he's back on the trail soon. Here, here. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Eugene Manning, one of three vying for the leadership. Michael Pretty, we appreciate your patience. And an important conversation coming up here about environmental illness, heat stroke, and some of the impacts that some people are feeling given this burst of heat here in the province. Don't go away. 
Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Well, apparently Michael Pretty can hang tough for a second because we're going to go to line number five and say good morning to a couple of competitors representing the province in the under-19 volleyball category at the North American Indigenous Games. Join us on line number five are Shane Winters and Noah Poole. Good morning to you both. You're on the air. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks. So apparently the Indigenous Games are even bigger than the Canada Games, which I did not realize until I read the stats a couple of days ago. But is this the biggest event either of you have ever attended? Yep, definitely the biggest. Yes, by far. Talk us through the experience, because it's one thing to compete provincially or at the Atlantics or even the Nationals, but this is a much larger event. Is it intimidating or exciting? Well, it is nerve-wracking, but when you get out on the court, it's a lot of fun. You're playing with your friends, and nerves go down. And it's just like one big competition that we're used to. So what kind of, tip of competition are you up against? I'm the father of a volleyball player, too, and we'd see the provincials go down, then we take a trip to the mainland to find out, oh, my God, there's some pretty good volleyball players around the country. Yeah, there's definitely some really good volleyball players. We got a few teams that we're going to have to play. And who are you guys up against today? Ontario. We'll find out in short order where we stack up, eh, boy? Yeah. Where do you boys play your volleyball when you're just here back in the province? Uh, I I play in uh, McCulloch, Labrador. Yeah. The small North Coast community on the, in Labrador. Yeah, and uh, I play down in St. Louis on South Coast. What kind of competition do you have throughout the course of the year? Because, of course, travel is extremely expensive when coming from Labrador in particular. So do you simply play amongst the different communities and schools in Labrador if you had an opportunity to do some travel, get, get a taste of some of the various competitors that are out there? We usually, for school, makes it to two tournaments a year, one for the regional tournament and another for the provincial tournament. And on the north coast, we have called fall meet and all the uh, six towns on the north coast plays against each other and whoever wins volleyball there qualifies for regionals how many players from here are on your team uh there's three from mccullick and 10 in total 10 players one from newfoundland nine from labrador fantastic stuff what position do you both play i'm a setter yeah and i'm I'm sorry, I heard setter. I didn't hear the second position. And I'm middle. Playing in the middle. Yeah, listen, it's fun in the middle if you can get off the ground. What kind of hops do you guys got, especially the middle? Not very good hops, but I'm very tall. How tall are you? 6'6". Six, 6'6 six. Six, six will do in the middle. How a boy. Looking forward to it. And, of course, the setter. Volleyball is the greatest court sport as far as I'm concerned. Basketball is the choice of many. But I can, you know, get a rebound, go the length of the floor, and dunk it in basketball. But I've got to have a good setter to give me a good pass so that someone can – pardon me, I have to get a good pass of the setter so I can get a good set, so I can get an opportunity to have a swing. So volleyball is a team sport. I think it's brilliant. What drew you to volleyball? Uh – I think what drew me is when I started playing in grade seven and getting to go to the provincial tournaments, seeing how good everyone were, and really made me work harder to get where we are today. Back home, Nicole, it's, uh, 
you see a lot of volleyball, like the atmosphere of it around the coast, the McCulloch, fall meets. And uh, watching, watching that as a kid made me want to play when I was older. So it's one thing to participate in your own sport in volleyball, but the North American Indigenous Games also have some very traditional Indigenous sports that would be unlike, say, for instance, the Canada Games. Are you thinking about going and looking at some of those competitions? What else are you interested in seeing while you're there? I'm really excited to watch the cross. It looks like a rough, fast sport that's going to be entertaining. I'm sorry, go ahead, if anyone else wants to say something. Yeah, and um, there's some other cool sports that got to do with the culture, like, say, archery. Mm-hmm. I can get other sporting events. That'd be pretty cool to watch. And the, some of those sports look absolutely brilliant to me. You know, in the archery world, you'll have the what would be in the shape of an animal, different points for where you strike the animal with the arrow, that type of stuff. I don't know the exact rules and ins and outs, but it's very different and in, uh, very interesting looking. Listen, I'll let you guys go get your stretches in before you take on Ontario here. Really appreciate you making time. Enjoy not only the volleyball competition, but the games as a whole. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Happy to do it. There's Shane Winters and Noah Poole representing the province in the Eastern Volleyball Squad. Great stuff there. All right, you want me to get to a break and come back? And I'll go right to Michael, yes, because Michael's been waiting forever and a day. Join us on line number three is an instructor with the Canadian Red Cross. His name is Michael Pretty. Michael, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. How you doing, man? Excellent. How about you? Good. It's good to see the, the, the I was at McCovic, actually, this, the last winter teaching first aid. It's good to see the... People getting out from all over the province and representing, it's, it's awesome. It's an exciting time. It really is. Not only for yeah. the athletes, but for everyone who's ever been involved with them and for their family, if they're lucky enough to travel yeah. to Nova Scotia to take it all in. I think it's brilliant. I'm glad that Shane and Noah made time for us. Okay. Yeah. That was cool. I remember as a young kid, I, I did the same when I was representing Regina High School in a wrestling tournament. That was way back, like 1978 or 79. So, But you don't forget it, right? <laughs> What's that? And But you never forget it. No, you never, you never forget. No, that the uh, first time away and all that kind of stuff. It was fun. Absolutely right. Okay, let's get to the the heat. You know, the heat. Oh man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is there a difference between you know red flags or signs or the impact that heat would have versus say children, teenagers, middle aged oh, men like me and seniors? Yeah. A hundred percent. A lot of medicine is, is, is done around like the average person, right? So if anything that doesn't make you an average, while we would deem an average normal person, young, sick, um, people don't can't eat properly because of their their circumstances. Uh, and the older you are, it's like an old car; it starts to wear out. You're more susceptible to all all the different things. And babies, like little babies. Um, they can actually have seizures and stuff if their heat gets too high too fast. So what do we need people to be aware of? Because, you know, we hear the same old piece of advice, and they're probably very functional and helpful, you know, to stay hydrated and find yourself some shade and try not to take on too many strenuous activities when the humidex in particular is as high as it is today. What are we telling people beyond that? Because that all sounds fundamental, but not everyone has a cozy, cool, mini-split-cooled home to rest in today. So what do you want people to know and what they should look out for with their own health? Um... If you are uh, young or or older and you have like a cold or you're taking medications or, you know, talk to your doctor about how that can affect you, but be aware of what's going on with you, right? Uh, If you start to feel a little bit dizzy or if you start to, it's all about prevention and listening to your body and listening to what you you say. 
um, and how does that that go about it? And those preventions, right? Uh, maintain a healthy level of, of fitness. Um, it's kind of too late to go and do that in heat, but uh, avoid being outdoors in the hottest part of the day. Remember that old saying: "Only mad dogs and Englishmen work in the hot afternoon sun." Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. So you know, I got a couple of kids this summer. They're out and they're doing some yard work and stuff for me. And at one o'clock, I say, "Right, we're done for the day. Let me drive you home." Because it doesn't make any sense to be at work, and, and but sometimes you have to. So if you do have to, take frequent breaks, stay in the shade, drink lots of fluids, um, and pay attention to what you're what you're doing. Um, and then if the humidity gets you know 45, 50, then what humidity means is there's more water in the air, especially in dry air. So uh, if there's more water in the air it's harder for your lungs to get oxygen from the air and oxygen is the part of the air that we need to live right so it makes it harder on you so if you have a chest ailment or you're sick or you have that summer cold that's even going to make it harder for you light clothing loose fitting clothing um and then you've got different you know environment okay so heat waves yeah humidity if it gets above 60 70 stay inside and stop moving around um Children and the elderly are less able to sweat if you don't have good uh, hygiene. It's, it's harder for you to sweat, and sweat is what makes us cool. Um, the other thing, too, is, is that it, it can get... The first symptom is going to be usually heat cramps. So you're not getting enough uh, electrolytes, your mild muscle contractions, so that's going to be bad. Then heat exhaustion, which is a big part. You ever like be outside in the sun and you're working in the garden and you, you feel a bit logy? And you go have a drink of water and everything kind of clears up. Well, that's because you're starting to have heat exhaustion. So the big thing is stop the gain and start the loss. Makes sense to me. And you, you mentioned something that I was going to ask about. Is there an important difference between simply taking on board a lot of water versus electrolytes? And then you can buy electrolytes in the form of a package that you mix with regular tap water. So how important is that? And what do people need to know? Because my wife, for instance, is constantly at it, and I understand why. But how important is adding those electrolytes to simply a glass of water? So when you're, it's really important because electrolytes is what enables all the intercellular fluid. But to put it simply, it's what allows all your nerve endings in your body to talk to each other. Now, if you're a nurse or a doctor, you're going to say, well, that's not exactly what it means. But for for the common person like myself, electrolytes is what makes everything talk to each other better. And when you sweat more, you lose electrolytes more. You really lose electrolytes if you have diarrhea or you throw up. You lose a lot. So like I teach wilderness first aid, jello. A bit of jello in a glass of water, full of electrolytes, full of sugar. Right? So you don't need to go out and buy electrolytes in, 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 in certain things. Uh, if you're just walking around, Gatorade and that kind of stuff has too much of the salts that you need. But just like a spoonful of jello in a glass of water would be perfect. And it's, it's relatively, not, not no name jello, but jello itself because it has more of the electrolytes our body needs. So we actually teach that. What about if and when I start to develop some of the symptoms that may lead to where I maybe have a heat stroke? What does that actually mean to my body? What does recovery look like, and how can it be aided? Uh, Heat stroke, a lot of people say they have a heat stroke, but they just have really bad heat exhaustion. Heat stroke is when you stop sweating. Your skin gets extremely hot to the touch. You can have headaches, alter mental status. You get confused, irritable, bizarre, aggressive behavior. I'm reading from a list, can you tell? You can get have a, a problem seeing. Your life's in danger, right? That's a 911 call right there. 
it's you know some people will think you know talk about the weather is akin to talking about potholes is akin to all small talk that we use for banter at parties or in social settings what else do you want to tell folks of all ages about combating the next stretch of time where we have this type of humidity in particular it, it's well nothing is worth more than your life so even though i might think it's really important to go do something listen to what your body is telling you when you start getting overheated and when you start getting like a little bit logy, i hope people know what that means uh slow down drink some more drink some get some electrolytes in you uh, a lot of people take a lot of showers right in your house but if taking showers cooking in pots that aren't covered will increase the humidity inside your home so make sure you run the fan or you have the window open close the bathroom door when you're having a shower and keep it closed after your shower don't let it come into the, the other part of your house keep your pots covered when you're boiling or ha have the, the fan on and if you do stop sweating and you, you you you're getting severe headaches you need help the other thing is is, is you want to cool people off um Slowly uh, for heat exhaustion, so that's like a damp cloth on your chest or over your head. Not a cold, like a super cold cloth. Um, you lose a lot of heat in your forearms, so put your forearms in some cool water. Um, and do the same thing for your pets. If your dog is too hot, do not pour cold water over them. Do not take a, a towel and soak it in cold water and put it over their back. Dogs lose uh, control their temperature by breathing and through their feet, so wrap a lukewarm towel or face cloth around their feet put it on their stomach not on their back because it'll con it, it'll actually constrict their blood vessels and they'll they'll actually have a harder time getting blood to circulate and treat humans the same way yeah and for employers be cognizant of the fact that you know trying to keep the same pace on a cool day versus these types of days is not realistic and can be very harmful to your staff your crew and you know yeah. nothing quite like a sick day to drive down productivity <laughs> uh last comment to you michael before i have to go uh, listen to your body and, and just take care and slow down good to have you on the show i really appreciate your patience yeah no problem sir anytime swim in the pond coming up <laughs> there you go thanks michael Bye-bye. There you go. Michael Pretty is an instructor with the Canadian Red Cross. Let's take a break. Joe, you're next. He wants to talk about routine cancer screening for men over the age of 70. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Joe. You're on the air. Okay, Patty. Thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. Uh, okay. And uh, I think, I suppose we all all think that you are the storehouse of knowledge for us. <laughs> we, everything that I, I hear so much uh, on Hope and Line, I think the one thing I always go back to is when uh, you uh, interviewed um, uh, the Premier that time on the terrible budget. I think you took a hour-long interview with him. I, we were all glued to the radio that day. But uh, <laughs> anyway, your, your interview was, was pretty, uh, pretty... Your questions were pretty concise, and you had quite a quite a, a range of them so uh, I, I, ever since then I've, I've, been, <laughs> I've been glued to uh, open line. I appreciate it. Okay, yeah. Um, I, I just have one question today. Th this one is, is uh, really concerning me. A number of men uh, that I know have gone to the doctor recently and and wish to have a, um, a not because they have any symptoms but they have a root. They wanted a routine prostate uh, cancer screening, uh, the PSA uh, test, of course. And um, I mean, hard is it policy in Newfoundland right now that routine 
prostate cancer screening is outrightly refused a patient who doesn't have symptoms or merely not suggested for them. My understanding, and I'm actually in the queue to get a, a PSA test and a prostate exam. So what the suggestion is, is this is my understanding, Joe, is that the, PS, the PSA blood test are repeated over time, yearly or thereabouts. But the issue regarding non-symptomatic is I don't think they're actually performing the prostate examinations through the age of 70. In the United States, I remember reading that they do colorectal, colorectal cancer screening through the age of 75 and then stop if people aren't symptomatic. Why that is, I don't really understand the medicine behind it, but that's the basics of it. Yeah, PSA tests yearly, but the formal full-on prostate exam no longer done on men with no symptoms at the age of 70. Oh, man, that sounds kind of cold and callous to me, but uh, anyway, I I, I do a lot of reading on it, and I know the oncologists, they uh, say that prostate cancer is more than twice as likely in men over 70 and they're more than four times as likely to have advanced prostate cancer and more likely to die from the disease. So if there's some form of reasoning or some bad coffee these guys got into, I don't know. But, I mean, to me, whoever's behind the wheel, man, doesn't know where he's going. That's my feeling on it. I don't dispute that concept and that thought, Joe. I think part of the issue in the medical community is that there is such a high likelihood, and this for a variety of uh, cancers for folks who might be more susceptible as they age, but the possibility and the likelihood of false positives, and then consequently, the follow-up procedures may create more harm than more good in the world of preventive medicine. Now, now that you've put it in my mind, I'm going to search out some of this literature again to give it a bit more of a comprehensive read because I'm starting to get older. I'm 54. I'm getting my uh, second uh, prostate exam coming up soon, which I'm going to do as often as I can as I advance in age. But I think that's part of the concept, Joe, is false positives, consequently follow-up surgical treatments and or otherwise, whether it be chemo or what have you, may be creating harm where there was no harm to be treated. But I think that's part of the concept. Untreated like untreated prostate cancer, they said uh, about one-third will survive five years after diagnosis. And there seems to be uh, an emphasis on, like, to me, everything I read, it seems to be on the issue of mortality reduction. Mm-hmm. Yep. But, I mean, I can't imagine that we would trade that off. I mean, who in their right mind would say, well, it does more damage to you? I mean, who wants to have this stuff you know, metastasize into the bones, and then you can't even sleep at night until you die. I mean, that's the real fact. I mean, right now, our if we get prostate cancer and it's not, it's not, it's not checked. I mean, this, you hear them every day, and you hear this this ad that tells us, for goodness sake, go and get it checked. And because if you don't, finding it is what matters. Uh, because then they can act on it. So why, to an age to an age group, where cancer is more than twice as likely, and we're four times likely to have advanced prostate cancer? I mean, who possibly could tell me that this makes sense? I mean, it's either that it's getting to be such a headache for the government to be dealing with us and to give us those. I mean, if you got some kind of a you got again. You got some kind of um, you know private healthcare insurance, and that that's a different thing. But I mean, in, in Ontario now, for thirty-five bucks, you can go and have your 
and have that particular test on. But I mean, right now I'm waiting for this lady from from the Cancer Society there in Ontario. She's getting back to me. I called her yesterday, and I just after, her, you know, I didn't know if they would buy, you were in any way, if they were actually, um, you know, a part of this. Like, is the Cancer Society suggesting this? Is it politically motivated? Uh, are the intentions, um, you know, a little more uh, nasty than than what we realize? And I'm not one of those persons who thinks that everything uh, somebody is, you know, conspiring against us. I'm not one of those theorists. But I still believe that it's because uh, I know I've discovered recently, and on almost every one that go for a test, like you say, you're going for your test, and you have no symptoms. All of my friends who have had no symptoms go to the doctor, and then they find that their prostate levels are the, the this particular PSA is up to say four to five, and the doctor in every situation, and I hope the doctors come on and tell me the difference, and the politicians. But in every case, my friends have told me, the doctor says, oh, don't worry about it. Oh, no, don't. you got no problems with this. Right? These are the same guys, and I know eight or nine of them. And some of them been down in their 50s and some in their 60s. And they've been told, don't worry about it. And they said, I want it checked. And they, they have it checked, and sure enough. It has been cancerous. So I, I don't know what's at play here. I can't understand such a horrible and um, a frightening disease uh, like prostate cancer. I just, I just believe it's one of the most horrible diseases, not if it's caught in time. But I can't believe this is happening. Uh, if this is an attitude or, you know, and if this is, uh, if this is an attitude of, of our healthcare system, I don't see, I mean, are we driven into private health care of some sort, or this is another ploy that they're using, this incremental kind of um, movement? Because they are, people People are now, and I know them, who have been refused the test. I'm going to try to get an appropriate medical professional to come on and talk us through the concept of aging out of screening. I'm certainly not qualified to speak about it in any informed uh, manner. So I'm going to Dave Williams. Let's put our heads together and try to figure out who can come on, whether it be a national voice or a provincial voice about screening and ages and why and why nots and the potential false positives and treatments and the like. So, Joe, you stay tuned to the program. I'm going to get the appropriate healthcare pro to come on and talk about this. Well, I'll definitely do that, and thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Be well. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break for the news. Do not go away. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four, or three. Good morning, Tina Davies. You're on the air. Good morning, Tiger. Hot enough for you? Hot enough for me. How about you? (laughs) Way too hot. Way too hot. Not used to this, that's for sure. Couple of things, hon. June 21st and 22nd of this year, just a couple of weeks ago, um, myself and my co-trainer were, we made some history. We actually did the first 
suicide intervention workshop at HMP for the inmates, not the guards, for the inmates. First ever. So I'm really proud of that. And uh, I wanted to give a shout out to uh, Jen White, who's the social worker there with the Correctional Health Services with Eastern Health, and to Susan Green, who's the provincial manager of institutional programs for the Department of Justice. And we've got a second one. We're going to be booking a second one here shortly. How did that come to pass, Tina? Was that something initiated by the penitentiary or the Eastern Health or, pardon me, the, uh, the Provincial Health Authority or you? Sure, yeah. Uh, it, I'll tell you what happened. Well, uh, Richard's Legacy, uh, LifeWise, and Canadian Mental Health uh, Association, Newfoundland and Labrador, were approached by the Department of Health and Community Services to form a joint project to handle all the funding handed out for mental health training. So people could apply and um, organizations could apply, that kind of thing. And then uh, if they receive the funding, then the three of us are three organizations together handling all the mental health first aid, applied suicide intervention skills training, which is the suicide intervention, and also safe talk. so that's that's how it started, and then I meet every Tuesday morning with a group at HMP. Uh, it's it's kind of like a support group, uh, and so this through the jigs and reels, uh, it came about that we should do an intervention workshop for the inmates. So the uh, social worker Jen applied and got the funding, so we we ended up doing it and. As Richard's legacy, I had applied for funding, so I have several community workshops that I'm doing, and so I'm using one of my community workshops to do a second one at at uh, HMP for the inmates. Why was it important to bring this program to a setting like the penitentiary? It's really important. I'll tell you. Uh, Because of staff shortages, even the guards aren't getting the training right now. Uh, And um, it's hard to schedule when you don't have as many guards. It's hard to schedule a group off for a two-day training. And I can understand that. But I think it's really important, uh, especially for the inmates, because they're the ones that are living there together. And they're the ones who are in close proximity to each other. And they would be probably the first to recognize anybody that might be having those kinds of thoughts and I think it's important uh, that everybody know how to do an intervention to recognize those signs and and to ask and to keep people safe because we've had exactly these circumstances happen in the penitentiaries various institutions here in this province so it's not like it's not something that's been been happening and the lack of attention to it probably has further complicated and exacerbated the problem so the work that you do in the community on this front is important and i hope you know that and even if we just change the way we think about it the way we talk about it the words we choose just does make a difference whether it be recognizing signs and going beyond are you okay to ask more probative questions and recognizing when something is much more than having a case of the blues or the blahs because when we just are afraid to talk about these traumatic and emotional issues then things just get worse it's not just status quo things get worse 
Absolutely. The, the biggest myth about suicide today is that talking about suicide causes suicide. That is the, that's the biggest myth ever, I'm telling you, because when you're thinking about suicide, uh, you have to talk about it. You need to talk about it. If you don't, um, and it's very hard to do that. So that's why it's important for others to recognize that perhaps somebody might be having those thoughts. And you know what? Even if you ask someone if they're thinking about suicide and they say no and you believe them, um, what harm has been done? Absolutely none. And in the future, that person, should they ever do have thoughts of suicide, will know they'll be able to come to you because you're not afraid to talk about it. People are so afraid to talk about it. And um, that's that's the problem, whether you're having the thoughts yourself or whether you're a close friend or family or or coworker or anything. It's just people just don't talk about suicide. And I work every day to change that. We've experienced it here in this company. I've experienced it in my social circle. I know that it's a an issue that if we don't have honest discussions, it's one thing to simply just talk about things, but we've got to be really bluntly honest about these issues. As uncomfortable as it might make some people feel, it will very likely, most likely, or definitely make it easier to talk about and consequently we'll have less examples to be mourning. Uh, Tina, last word to you before we say goodbye this morning. Well, I want to make I want to make talking about suicide openly and honestly as as casual as someone saying pass the salt. You know, it's important. Uh, we're talking about life and death. Um, that being said, I have, because of the funding, I have three free workshops, assist workshops, that uh, people can reach out to me. The first one is tomorrow, Thursday and Friday. The next one is August 5th and 6th, which is a weekend. And the third one is August 23rd and 24th. So this is around a $200 workshop. And I do that for the community because not everybody has works for organizations that can pay for this. So um, if anybody's interested, they can certainly reach out to me and uh, we can make arrangements and get them trained and they can learn how to save lives. How do they reach you, Tina? Uh, you can reach me at my email address, which is uh, T like Tom, G like Gary, Davies, D like dog, A, V like Victor, I, E, S, 99 at gmail.com. Okay. I'll keep it on hand. Thank you very much, Patty. Always good to have you on. Keep up the great work, Tina. See you around. Thanks, sweetheart. Take care. You bye too. Bye-bye. All right, Tina Davies. Good stuff. Good work. Uh, final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Terry, you're on the air. Uh, good morning. Do I Patty? Morning. Uh, I want to speak to the uh, speeding drivers in the uh, Indian Pond Drive CBS area. Okay. Uh, my dad uh, just recently passed away, and uh, we had a cat that uh, we had for the past two years, and uh, some uh, person speeding down the road mowed the cat over and left it dead in the street in the front of our house. And now our, my mom, who's 80 years old, is just totally heartbroken. And now she actually cries herself to sleep because her cat is gone. And I want to tell that person how much damage he has done to our family. I'm sorry to hear of your loss. My condolences uh, for the start. You. I mean, it's terrible, and I've lived it, and it's very, very difficult. And then when it gets further salt in the wound with the loss of the pet, 
I mean, people are just oblivious, right? You never know, number one, what's going on in people's lives. Number two, to pretend that you're, you're so important that you've got to lay down the hammer to get to wherever you're going, and it's life and death when all it is that you're oblivious and reckless and aggressive, you're going to get yourself or someone else killed, or in this case, the Catholic. I just shake my head driving around. It's extremely frustrating, and I'm sure it's even more so for you. Yes, and we just buried my dad just last month. And now uh, to go through this, it's just just totally upsetting our family. And and I want to let that person know, and I hope he feels so guilty that maybe he might uh, think about slowing down when, when he's driving. I hope so, and they fully, they full well know that they struck the cat and didn't bother even to stop and or to slow down to begin with. Terry, uh, how old was your dad? My dad was 82. And mine was 84 when he yeah. passed. And what, what happened to him? What was wrong? Uh, well, he had uh, some heart issues, and then uh, he, had a, well, he had a kidney transplant uh, years ago. And uh, through the heart problem, he had to get uh, tests, and that kind of put more pressure on his heart. Uh, he ended up going back on dialysis, and then uh, he just couldn't take it anymore. Terry, and if you're so inclined, and feel free to tell me to get lost, uh, give us a favorite memory, a favorite story when you think about your dad makes you smile. Uh, well, we, we live in Pond and we got our, our wharf at the back of our house here, and just going out and fishing and uh, just having a good time in the day. Uh, you know, it was always, uh, it was always a memory. I appreciate the time. My condolences once again. And uh, the summary message here is please slow down, folks. You're getting nowhere in a hurry around here. Yes. Thank you, Patty. Take good care of yourself. Have a good day. You too, pal. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Very likely the final word goes to line number six. Brian, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. How are you? Okay, this morning. Thank you. How about you? Oh, pretty warm. Yep. Uh, Patty, I'm going to be quick. I saw an interview on a Sunday night. Uh, Joe Scarborough interviewed the cast of Oppenheimer, the guy who created the bomb. Mm-hmm. And uh, they they did, they went over a lot of information generally about the movie. and But they didn't really talk about personally what happened to these people. I'd like to know, you know, what happened to the person who dropped that bomb? And uh, I don't know, I guess in the movie you'll find out what happened to Oppenheimer. I always think that the dropping of that bomb was so horrific that it would leave uh, people, uh, you know, thinking for years after. But you wouldn't have any idea what happened to these people, would you, Paddy? Well, not really. I remember that the aircraft was called the Enola Gay, for number one, and I think there was a crew of 10 or a dozen uh, aboard. There's only one name I can remember, and I don't know if I've ever heard a real story about what happened in the aftermath, but some guy named Colonel Tibbetts, I believe, was the pilot, and I don't know what became of him. Uh, but that's an interesting part of the conversation that I can, I, I suppose if I look around, I can, because guaranteed, Tibbetts and other members of the crew were interviewed about, you know, what it felt like to know that they dropped the first atomic bombs on yeah. Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I think if you... If uh, Mr. O'Keefe is out in the audience, uh, he uh, taught his He may know, you know. I'd like for him to phone in and, and, and talk about it. So. Yeah, I, I don't know, but that's an interesting question. And I'm sure in the world of Hollywood blockbuster, that aftermath story might be interesting to some watchers, but maybe not the crux of the Manhattan Project itself and J. Robert Oppenheimer, who's actually played by Killian Murphy, who I thought was great in Peaky Blinders, right? He was Tommy Shelby. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing the movie. It's actually on my list. Yeah, well, you know, it's a horrible thing. 
Uh, and you know what I'm always amazed at? Uh, when I was in high, when I taught high school in Saskatchewan, we had uh, kids come over from Japan to learn the language. And I never, ever sensed any type of anger or hate towards our allies on the people of Japan. I never saw that. And it always surprised me. Because if someone got that bomb on Newfoundland, I'd tell you, I'd be pretty upset, you know. Yeah, fair enough. And I mean, add to it, we interned a, a big load of uh, Japanese Canadians and put them in uh, what are, in essence, prison camps as a result right. of Pearl Harbor. That's right. Well, thank you, Paddy, for letting me have my say, okay? No problem. I, Appreciate the time. Bye now. Take care, Brian. Bye-bye. Yeah, that is one of the movies that I do think looks interesting. And of course, the whole conversation surrounding the Manhattan Project is fascinating. Initially, J. Robert Ottenheimer, who's a theoretical physicist, he opposed the development of the bomb. And then, of course, was appointed to lead the project, which was, I think, down in New Mexico, if I'm not mistaken. He was actually there at the Trinity test when they had the first real test of the capacity and the devastation associated with the, the bombs that they were to drop on the cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So I think that movie is something that I'm going to take in. But, you know, there's also lots of curious stories surrounding Oppenheimer himself. There was some skepticism, cynicism uh, in amongst the public who are aware of the appointment. And that that wasn't a, a big swath of the American population either. But he had relations with people or and him or himself relationships with the Communist Party. And remember, in the 40s. Communism and on the heels, well, 50s and 60s, even more so, Americans and their distrust, mistrust, and fear of communism was extremely real and palpable in American communities and amongst American citizens. So, yeah, August the 6th, 1945, the Enola Gay drops the A bomb for the first time. Uh, it's, of course, the only instance of nuclear arms being used in armed conflict since or that was the only time ever and hasn't happened since as we teach around people worried about what the next steps might be in the conflict in Ukraine the fact that we've got a nuclear power involved and maybe some I mean I, I don't pretend to know exactly what's going on on the ground because fair and accurate information is really difficult to come by but it's the only instance of a nuclear weapon being used in an armed conflict in the history of the world 6th of August 1945. All right, final check in on the Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning, right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye bye. <laughs>